I could not believe what I was seeing. I could have filled the back of his head with 556, which is an absolute joke. Well, it's not an ape, because if the Sasquatch was an ape, we would already have one. What are these elusive hominids that stalk the wilderness? Your host, two-time witness and field researcher for more than 40 years, William Jevning. Welcome to the mystery. Welcome to Creek Devil. We're speaking with James today. James, how are you, my friend? I'm doing great. How are y'all? I'm doing very good. Well, Tom, you and James have actually chatted, so I'm going to have you kick this off. Absolutely. James, good to talk to you again. Uh, yeah, I'm how start you doing? From, I'm doing very good. Thank you. So I'm going to start from the beginning, and you've got three encounters, but I really want to start with the first one, and I believe that was in the late 90s. Can you tell no, 80, me what you— about 81. About 81. 81. Okay, so I was off by uh, at least a decade. Okay. Can you just start from the beginning, and where were you, and what led up to the encounter? Okay, I was in the woods I played in as a child, about a mile deep in from my parents' house. And at the time, I was married, had kids, and lived in an apartment complex about four miles away, so I drove over. And we went to a gun show, and I bought a little snub-nosed 38. And I I went with a friend, and he went and bought a rifle. We were going to go that week, the next weekend, to go shooting, but I couldn't wait. It got rained out of my construction job. And that afternoon, I had to go shoot this thing. I've been playing with this pistol all, you know, all week. So I took it down, and I was walking down through the woods. And the way it's set up, if you ever heard about Richmond, there's this thing called a fall line, which is where the North American plate slid up against the Atlantic plate, and it used to be the shoreline back down the shore and beyond. So it's kind of gnarly right there. And everything along the fall line, all the rivers are rapids. Richmond has class five rapids downtown. And, you know, we're a little west of that. And being that the land is, is so, well, let's just say gnarly compared to the, uh, the other parts around Richmond, they didn't build up out there because it wasn't feasible economically because there's too much hill, rock to blast, and all that stuff. So it was basically from my parents' neighborhood out to Charlottesville. It was nothing but woods and farms. Now it's built up, and you got to go 20 miles out now. So where I saw this thing, there's now office parks, malls, and neighborhoods with mansions in them. And there's a stretch of coal mines in the Richmond Coal Basin. And they had, there were three main mines that run about 20 miles north and south, you know, along the James River, west of Richmond. And there's an old rail bed, no tracks left, but it was a bed from the, from the early 1800s I was walking down. Coming to this old field that was grown up with some weeds, it was, it was March. It had rained that morning, and it was really windy. And I'm just bebopping. And all of a sudden, I just stop. 
dead in my tracks, and I'm looking at this thing. In my mind, I couldn't figure out what it was. I'm thinking, is it a bear? No, it doesn't have a muzzle. What kind of dog is that? I mean, it's just, it's just, it's just your mind, you just can't. I'm just standing there perplexed, just, just going through my mind, rattling off what this thing would be. And all of a sudden, this thing just turns and looks at me. And for some reason, something in my head said, whistle. And I can put my fingers in my mouth and make this really loud whistle. And I did that, and this thing took off. And when it ran, it covered 100 yards. I don't know, three seconds maybe, and it was gone. And it was just the way it ran. It was straight. It it didn't lope or whatever, you, you know, buck or whatever. It just was straight back. It just stayed straight like it was gliding, but it was moving. If you think about Superman stretched out, and then have this thing stretched out, legs and arms stretched out, and then at the same time, it's it's front. Let's just I never saw hands, but let's just say hands would hit the dirt and pull at the same time that the hands would meet the back feet that pushed, and then it would stretch out like Superman at the same time the two hands would come and meet the back feet in you know in the middle of its body. And that's how this thing moved. It was just gone. I've never seen anything like it in my life. And hey, James. Did, yeah. <clears throat> when it was running, um, it sounds like it was just kind of gliding along almost. Uh, we've, we've talked to like other witnesses cheetah. in the past. Okay. Yeah. Did it bob up and down or was it just kind no, of a no, fluid, no, no, flat? No. It was fluid. It was Superman. The two arms come down and would pull, and the back legs would, would come up and meet and push. And as they pushed out backwards, the arms would come out straight. So it was like that. They would meet in the middle, you know, pull, push, pull, push. If that makes any sense, if you can picture that. If I, I'm trying to yeah, do I the sure best can. description. But it, well, the back is straight. Just... It was straight, and the hair was flying. So that eliminates a bear, that eliminates a dog, pretty much anything, any kind of mammal, North American mammal we can think of. Oh, like I told you. Would you agree? Yeah. But like I told you, that weekend we were supposed to, you know, he bought a gun at the gun show, and we were going to go shoot the guns. And I bought a scope for my twenty two, but I left it at home, and I brought my shotgun, my arm. I have a slug gun. And he said, why you got that? I said, I just, yeah, just because. I didn't want to tell him. So I didn't go down there without my shotgun and buckshot. And we shot his rifle and all, but I had him stand. I said, do me a favor. I saw this. I don't know what it was, but would you stand down here? I said, I think it was a bear, maybe. I'm going to see how big this thing was. <laughs> and I had him stand where the thing was digging. I mean, it was digging in dirt. I didn't get, I forgot to tell you all that. There's some groundhogs down there. And I guess it was digging for groundhogs because you, you could see where it was digging. And I had him stand there, and I got back to where I was. And this thing was every bit as tall as he was squatted down. And like I told Tom, I mean, if I had to guess, if I had to guess the weight, 
Um, she told me to double if I'm thinking about a human. So this thing had to be every bit of 900 pounds. Because when it was squatted down, it was at least almost six foot tall. And it was just massive. Just as round yeah, as the gallon of a barrel. James, you talked about the face uh, a little bit when we talked earlier. And just a moment ago, you mentioned, you know, it, it couldn't be a bear because it didn't have a snout. No. Uh, how, how good of a look, how much detail do you think you no, got? No, it was quick because, because it turned. The wind was blowing at its back. So it would be blowing from my on my left side, and it was blowing at its back. So the hair was coming, blowing over its, you know, its face and the side of its face, and I couldn't tell if it had one of those crests or not because the hair was blowing so much. It was really it was March. It was really windy. And when it turned, it was just dark. No features because I was about fifty yards away, and it was just dark face. And it saw me, and it looked, I mean, for some reason, it, it, it didn't search for me. It looked directly at me. And it couldn't have smelled me because of the way the wind was blowing. And something just told me to whistle. And I whistled as loud as I could, and I, can, I could do a good one back then. And it just, it spun and took off. And that was the end of that. And then I got to the car as fast as I could. You know that's interesting. I must have run a hundred yard. I must have run a hundred yard dash in, in ten seconds. I understand. <laughs> well, and I just want to say it's interesting that you had a intuition to to do a loud whistle. I don't know where that came from, but it sounds like it was definitely the right thing to do. Something told me to whistle. I don't know what it was. It's just a whistle. I mean, I had the gun in my hand. I mean, it's a thirty-eight five. I mean, what would that do? But something said, just yeah. whistle. And I, and I whistled. And it took off. Oh, and it, and it was it was like a... Remember me telling you how, how weird the hair was on it? Uh, <clears throat> yeah, I do. But go ahead and uh, let's, okay. let's explain that for okay. the audience. Uh, if, if you can picture a cowboy duster, those, those coats, that, and they had that cape around the shoulders... From the head to the right. shoulders, imagine a cowboy cape. The hair was longer and lighter in color on that part of it than it was on the rest. The rest of it was it looked to be dark brown. And it was a cloudy, overcast day. But it was really matted. I mean, it was dirty, filthy looking. The whole thing was matted and just dirty. <clears throat> and it just... so. It was it mad. This... I mean, it was it was disgusting looking. Let's put it that way. Right, and so this hair you're saying it came off the head and kind of went down. Uh, if I understand correctly, on the shoulders, almost like like you said, like the cowboys, uh, like their yeah, overcoats. Yeah, 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 yeah. And and halfway down the, the the shoulders and you know the back, just like a cowboy. You know, you know what I'm talking about. You see the westerns. Right. Oh, yeah. And they had so that this was piece of material uh, over the shoulders and stuff. Yeah. And so it sounds like this hair may have got, because it's exposed more, maybe it gets a little bit sun bleached or something. Is that kind of what you're thinking? I, I, I don't have a, 
I don't know. It just it, was, it could have been mud for all I know. But it was extreme. I remember seeing that it was extremely mad, even down on its arms and as far as I could see. I mean, the weeds came up a little bit, you know. So I, I never saw hands, per se. Because when it started moving, it was more of a blur. I mean, this thing was gone. Gone. And you said it was digging digging around for the groundhogs. And the groundhogs are, actually, some of them pretty good size. They're size of a, a real small dog or house cat. Is that pretty accurate? Oh, the, uh, the, yeah, they, yeah, they're pretty big. Yeah, they're about the size of a uh, raccoon, almost a small raccoon. Yeah, at least the ones. At least so the that'd ones be a good meal for these things. Huge. Yeah, and we went down. I mean, it rained again real bad that night again, and I, I didn't go back and look for any tracks. And when we went back, you could see where it was digging, but it had rained so bad it was just a mud puddle. Everything down there. It had, it had been raining. Did you for see a any footprints? Days. No. Okay. It was it was just impressions. It wasn't any print to say. It was just it was mostly water still because because the the hill went down and then the the railroad bed was right there. So it made like a little dam and all the water would come down and like pull kind of pull up a little bit in there. I don't know why the groundhog was there. I guess that's what he was digging for. But usually they're well, up, they're up they're up in the rail bed more. The groundhogs are. Yeah, so I don't know what he was doing down okay. in, down lower, but I'll tell you. Scared, well, but and I just wanted me. to comment. You and I, you know, we're I was looking at Google Earth at the, the location, and well, we've had quite a few sightings. Uh, recently where we've had guests on the show and we've spoken with other people that are uh, just a little over 100 miles from this location. They're in uh, actually uh, North Carolina. Right. And so there's there really is a significant population in that region there. Have y'all, have y'all ever heard of two-tone like I saw? Two different color hairs? Yeah, we have. Okay. In, in, in a dark dark skin, like dark face and all that? Oh, yeah. Okay. But, I mean, it, the, the wind was blowing so hard. I mean, how did this thing spin and look at me like that? But It couldn't have smelled me. There's no way. And it's just like a direct sight. Bam. It didn't look around for me. It just looked right at me. And I didn't make zeroed any noise. right in on you. Yes, and I, well, and I know I didn't make any noise, and it was so windy. If I I'm going to speculate. Yeah, let me let me just answer that real quickly. As a primate, well, uh, I'll get your opinion on this. As a primate, they're mainly visual, and they probably very in tune to their local environment. So you stood out as something that it wasn't familiar with. Very quickly, if that makes any wow. sense. In other words, it—I don't want to say it. It may may very well have memorized that environment when it goes in, and now here's it's something that open. doesn't belong. Now that was that was before you whistled. Yes, yes, 
That's why something told me to whistle. And you know, if you stick your fingers in your mouth, you know you can really. I can let one go. And it could have. It could have even, you know, been aware of your presence, um, but just the proximity was what got his attention. But what got me is that you know, the Sasquatches are only up, you know, around your way. Because, you know, we never heard of them around. I never heard of them around here. They were just only in the Northwest. Oh, no. And that's what, I mean, for years. You got plenty of until, them there. Until I, hooked <laughs> up with, until I hooked up with y'all. I mean, that, that's when he said, yes, that's what I saw. Yeah, you know, you've got plenty of them in that part I mean, of the it country. didn't bother me for years. It wasn't on my mind for years. But every now and then, you know, I think about it, what I saw. Mm-hmm. Well, there's a, another gentleman. We we had a guy named Troy on. Well, that was, gosh, three four years ago, <laughs> uh, and he was in West Virginia, I believe, and he had a really dramatic um, encounter, where, as I recall, was it one or two of them that ran down the hill and bared their teeth at him. It it was one actually did more than bare its teeth. It threw a tantrum, and there were three guys. Man. That's right. Yeah, they're fishing. No, that didn't. This thing took off. I've never had. I've never had them do that. No. They've always took off. Well, this was an opposite situation. And three guys were fishing. That's right. One of these things ran down the hill and did a tantrum. They took off. And as, if I recall correctly, I think one of them got a fishing lure stuck in his arm. He's like, "We'll worry about this later. We're just running." <laughs> Yeah. I, um, I, yeah, I could. Yeah, I could see that. Yeah, I think oh, yeah. I'd run too. Yeah, you just want to get out. So this but one that, was early '80s, and mm-hmm. so now you're you're aware that at least one of them is in the area. Let's go on and what happened with the second sighting. Well, the second one is was on the James River near the Hardware Wildlife Management Area. There's this little river called the Hardware. And in Virginia, if a ditch is more than 20 miles long, they call it a river. So this thing isn't but 20 feet, maybe 20 feet wide at the mouth where it meets the James River. But it's a good place to fish when you're in the canoes. Anything like that, you know, the fish are hanging out there. So my buddy, he's actually closer than I was, but we were both up near the mouth fishing. And I threw first, and as soon as my bait hit the water, we heard this splash. And when you turned, we both turned our heads, so I guess I turned mine before he did a little bit. And, and this big black thing just leaped across the river and went up the bank and just, it sounded like they say a bulldozer going through the woods. Yes, it sounded like a bulldozer going through the woods. And that was pretty much that. It was just a flash of black. I mean, you know, it was out the corner of my eye pretty much. And it leaped a good 20 feet. Whatever, I mean. That was my question. How, okay, so this thing leaped across the river and well, like 20 said, feet, that's like, still a river. But it was already in the water, but what the, it looked like it leaped across, but we heard it splash. 
and that's when I saw it airborne. So it might have been in your river already or took took a step first or something. I don't know. But it was up the mouth of, you know, a little piece up, probably about 30 Okay, yards. what year was this? 2010, maybe. Okay, so really it's not that long ago. I mean, it's, you know, no, I mean, 10 years or so. I've been doing this canoeing stuff for almost 40 years now, and we've never, it, we were the top predator. We had nothing to worry about. We don't even play radios anymore going down. We, we're listening from, you know, I mean, all this has happened in the last couple of years. Let me ask you, um, are there, have you heard of any reports? Is there any, I'm always interested in this because this kind of gives us a little historical precedent, historical perspective on it. Have there been any stories that you're aware of or lore or anything like that of creatures like this in, in your no. area? No, nothing, nothing at all. No one's ever talked about it. Nothing. Yeah. It's like they just it's like they just moved in. Well Oh and, and, oh, and then the train whistle. That's been going on since then too. Every time the train we talked about when they that. do when when they do a real road, they can let out a good blast, okay? But if it's like a little farmer access road that goes across the tracks, they give a little beep, beep, you know. Um, beep, beep, so, but you know a train whistle, just two, two hits. And, and my friends, this thing, like you said, mimic. We'd hear after the train, we hear there wasn't quite the train. And then my friends were, oh yeah, that's the inbred crackhead. He must be drinking and doing crack again. So we we thought it was humans. I mean, we didn't know. And then we okay. heard like crows. We we don't have many owls. We have let more me, crows. Um, okay, let me back up for a second. So this mimicking of uh, the locomotive horn, and you and I discussed it for a little bit. Tell the audience. Tell everybody. Um, it was it was loud, but it wasn't. It was just a little bit, not quite as loud as the locomotive. Is that right? Not not quite. No, it was it was loud, but I mean we could hear it good. It was often okay, distance. and it's always in the same place. It seems like. Okay. <clears throat> Do you think a person could put out that kind of volume? No. Okay. No. no I was, because that's, it that's had it had to been it had to been a mile away, <clears throat> at least a mile away. And when and was the time, last time you heard that sound? three, four years ago, maybe. But I've heard that okay. several times. I mean, we have our normal camping spot, which we don't use anymore, which, you know, we'll get into that in a minute. But it was at that camping spot that we always, that island we always picked out. They had a nice little sandy spot to put the tent and all, and that's the one we used. So... 
just to kind of summarize on this, it really does sound like in that instance, it's it's mimicking a mechanical sound, which will isn't. I mean, that's not unheard of. These creatures will mimic natural as well as I've heard they've even, uh, some people have reported they'll mimic a car door slamming. Yeah. You know, up in the mountains I, in the middle of the woods where there's no cars. I've heard, really? I've heard a, a number of times about the train whistle, in fact. You have? Yeah. Okay. Good. Then we're not crazy. How about crows? Have you ever yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, they'll do the crow in the, in the, the end. Yeah, absolutely. Get a little mm-hmm. at the end. Mm-hmm. A little monkey at the end of the crow. Yeah, we've heard that. But not at night. Daytime. Well, <clears throat> one of my favorites, well, uh, we have a gentleman up in Maine, Don, who is, is kind of amusing. He had one that he described it as a moo roar. Starts off as a cattle mooing and then turns into a roar. Do you remember that one? Yeah, I do. I've never heard. So they do all sorts of crazies. We've never heard of roar or those um, um, Dumbo. What I mean, Bobo, whatever his name is. Those calls. Well, I've never heard that either. You know what I'm talking about. Yeah, I Bigfoot do. Guy um, that does that, that, that I, we've never heard that. Or the, yeah, like those ones y'all sounds. play, like those ones y'all play to go on, I've never heard that. It's just mostly Sony birds, train whistles. Um, and sticks. Well, and that really, <clears throat> you know, I think it, it probably depends on the creatures, you know, with what location they're in, with what, re- what region they're at, and what they're uh, what they're familiar with within their own environment. So that would be really consistent with these creatures. You know, in different different regions, different parts of the country, they're going to uh, probably make different types of sounds. But at the same time, I think there's some similarities as well, like the rock clacking and that sort of thing. Tongue popping. Hey, um, can you pull up Google Earth? I sure can. Yes. Okay. Um, James River. I'm going to show you where we camp. Manuza's Island is covered in poison ivy, and that's where we heard the voice. Oh boy! And there is no way a human. Is this, I mean, we're talking poison ivy. There's no way our humans on this thing. And it's right ahead right. of where we camp. And we've heard the, um, now have you got the James River? I do, yes. Okay. What are you looking at now? Well, what city? <laughs> and you find okay, out so 15. Yeah, Can you go west of uh, Richmond and find Route 15? I'm I'm west of Richmond, yes. You found Route 15? I New Canton. Just click here. Okay. If you see right. Columbus, if right. you, if you, you found Route 15? 
Yeah, I'm looking at Cartersville, which is okay, uh, okay, 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 co- okay, Columbia. That's the next one. Yeah, yeah, I see Columbia. Yeah. Okay, okay, come on up about two miles, and you'll see something called Boatwright Island. I see that. Yeah. Okay, there's another island. I think it's called Spencer Spicer or something. Yeah, Spicer's Island. Uh huh. Sure. Okay, that's Poison Ivy Island. We camp on boat riding. Yeah, <clears throat> but Poison Ivy Spicer, whatever, is the one where we heard. You, you, you can't make the, you can't hear what they're saying, but you, it sounds like two people talking, and there's no way anybody's on that island. Unless they're not, unless they're immune to poison ivy, yeah. And and at nighttime, there was no reason for someone to be on that island, or any time, because the whole thing is just—we're talking poison ivy roots going up and down in trees as big as your wrist. That's how bad yeah. it is, and it's oh, killing sure, all yeah. the trees. I mean, the trees are dying and everything on that island. Yeah. So the so these and things really, honestly. You cannot burn poison ivy or poison ivy. You can burn it, but it's uh, if you inhale the smoke, you're in trouble. That's where we went through that skunk wall that I was telling you about. That stench. Right. This all happened the same week, the same camping trip. We went through the stench in the afternoon, then went on down and camped. Then we heard that crow that went to the monkey. And then night fell, and we could hear the... um. Like people talking, but you couldn't make it out. And then I'll sleep through anything. And my friend that was with me said that something was throwing rocks at the tent. Well, it's got to be because acorns don't fall in summertime, you know? So what he said, I believe, and then he said, Something was peeing, a man was peeing on the tent. And he woke me up because he started yelling for it to leave. And he said he could see through the tent in the moonlight a huge human, a hairy human peeing on the tent when, you know, when he hollered and stuff and it ran. And then we got out and something had peed on the tent. You and I talked about this and, and, Probably one. I'm going to ask Will what his thoughts are, but it sounds like kind of a dominance uh, territorial thing. It's you know very possible that it was an area that the creature felt that you had invaded, and it was um, you know just trying to establish that it was the the top you know top predator in the area. I don't know, Will. What are your thoughts on that? That's a good point. That's uh, that's what I would have said too. Sure. Have you ever heard that? I mean, being on the tent. Well, that's left to it. This is what he told I, me, and there was, it was wet in the corner. I, I can't say I've actually heard anybody say that, but it's certainly a possibility. And we keep a bucket of water. Now, Tom asked me if I smell anything. I said no, but my friend had a bucket of water that we keep for the fire, and he threw it on the tent right there. So that, I guess, would eliminate any smell, because I never smelled. Tom said we should have smelled something, I mean, bad smell, and I never did. But something that people... Yeah, it's hard to say. 
And it yeah, wouldn't be I mean, a human uh, to no one. I mean, if you camp and they know we're armed, I mean, who's going down the, you know, the river like that? And if you look around, it, it's it's just farms. Mm-hmm. And there's lots of cover, I'm, I know. Because all you see is woods. Well, you've got cover, concealment, and you got a food source, and you got a water source. And... <clears throat> Uh, so you've got those conditions, uh, you know, all the criteria is right for that. And then on top of that, you are in an area where there's activity that we've been hearing about late, lately that isn't, you know, isn't really that far away as far as these creatures are concerned. So, yeah, yeah I, heard it, y'all, it really I, heard y'all, I heard y'all say they can 20 miles and nights, nothing to them. Right, and in four or five nights, they could they could come from West Virginia, North Carolina, Pennsylvania. I mean, they could be there. Well, yeah, and and also, I suspect there's uh, a lot more uh, of the creatures there. I mean, there could be multiple groups. Again, I, I kind of go back to the analogy when people say, "Well, there's, you know, we see one here uh, periodically." You may see the same one, or maybe like the person who, you know, thinks they see a mouse in their home, you know, every so often. Well, it's it's not the same mouse. It's it, you got a family of them out there. So I think it's kind of the same thing with these creatures. Well, there were at least two of them because we heard two different. We heard a conversation going on. Let's okay, well, fill us in. Well, tell us about that one a little bit. Well, it went on for about ten minutes. And you couldn't understand what they were saying. And it was a murmur, just a murmur. And it came from that poison ivy island, which nobody would be on. Because you can see how close it is to where we were camping. It's right there. I mean, you know, you could take a rock and Okay, so you were, let me just back up a little bit. Okay, so you take your canoe out. You you do what a lot of people call canoe camping. Yeah. And you, okay, so you load up all your gear into the canoe and you found a place to go camping. And and we're actually not going to give the location away. But you're camping and then across the river, you hear what sounds like uh, non-distinct or No, no, it wasn't across. It was the same side. It was just another island ahead of the one we were on, but the same side, the north side of the river. Okay, all right. And so you hear this indistinct chatter that's not quite communication, not quite a language, but it sounds like people talking. Is that correct? It sounded like two people, two different. There was two different tones. One was a little deeper than the other one. So how many people were camping? And was it was it yourself just two and, of us. and one other yeah, person? Yeah, just two of us. Oh. Yeah, just two of us. All right. Did you guys have a conversation about hey, what's uh, what is that? Yeah. Yeah. Why is somebody over there? Well, they're probably fishing. Then they're going to float down. Well, nobody floated down because we'd have seen them in the moonlight. <clears throat> and people usually don't do that anyway because it's just too rocky to do it at night. Right. Oh, that's interesting. So we were waiting for someone to come by. Nobody came by. 
but it went on for about 10 minutes, and that's the night that we were peaceful. And before that, you know, we heard the crow that turned into a monkey. No okay, train was now this night. was at this, and that was at the same location, is that right? Yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. And then the next day, no. Um, we packed up and left. We were going to leave anyway. Right. So moving so we on. Talked what, it, we talked yeah. it up. To, we just talked it up to, you know, country boys having fun. Until I started listening to y'all and started thinking about things, and there's no way somebody was out there doing this. Because, <clears throat> I mean, you got to know. Yeah, if they were. <clears throat> so, and, and again, I just want to reiterate the reason nobody's out there is because. This is a poison ivy island, and there would be a huge uh, liability for doing that. You're going to get you're going to get yes a serious case of poison ivy. Okay, and shot. I mean, you're taking okay. a chance of that shot. too. I mean, you know, coming up on someone's camp at night. So right. I don't know. Right, exactly. And then when I and then you know the crow that turned into a monkey. I mean, we just pass it off and it's you know whatever. But now you know you think about it and listening to y'all, there's something to all that. I know there is now because I you know I've seen, I know what I've seen now. Mm-hmm. And that gets to the last one. Remember that last one I told you about. Okay. A couple years ago, um, on the Rivanna. Well, all right. So let's go ahead and let's jump into that one. And, and that's really the whole reason I called. That. That's really the whole reason I called. All right. Now, you know. So let's start from the beginning. I, well, there's this little river called the Rivanna River, which flows out of Charlottesville down to James, and in the middle of it. It's almost like you step back in time. That's why we like doing it. You don't see anybody. There's no houses. There's nothing but woods. And and there's some rock cliffs and stuff. It's it's kind of neat. It's it, it runs in the foothills. I wouldn't call it. It's like the Monticello Mountain. It's not really a mountain, but it's a really big hill. It's a bunch of these really big hills in a chain. And the river runs down along you know, at the bottom of this. So it's, it's, you know, looks pretty good. You feel like you're back in 1750 or whatever. And that's why we do it. And there's this big S-curve. And as you come out of it, there's this long straight. And then there's a little, little bend. And then there's another long straight. And we've been down there before I saw this thing. And we heard a bang, 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 bang coming from the top of the bluff. Again, we thought it was just a farmer up there or somebody banging on wood or something. We didn't pay any mind to it. So about a year later, we're going down the river with a couple different people doing the same run, fishing. And I had to go to the bathroom. So I stopped and told them to go on ahead. And I did my business, and they were down and coming around this bin. I heard bang, 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 bang. But this time, 
from another direction, I heard another bang, 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 bang. <clears throat> so I thought, you know, get my binoculars out. I don't know. I just something told me to. <clears throat> and I come creeping. I wasn't paddling. I was just drifting slow with my binoculars. And that's when I saw this thing. This thing was every bit of six to seven foot tall, reddish brown hair. And I was looking at an American Indian Neanderthal. <laughs> I mean, this was not a Sasquatch. All right. So let me stop there for a second. <clears throat> you said you saw what looked like a Native American Neanderthal. Yes, hair. Why tell give us the details. Why do you, was it the facial structure? Was it the body? I, what what brought it, you to it, that? It was a cross. I mean it, it had brown skin. It wasn't black like the other face that I saw a glimpse of. This was more tan. It had a nose. Not quite like a person, it's a little squished. A very prominent jawline. It had a brow ridge. It had long hair, like a hip. And then when you come down its back, the lower back and its stomach, it was real thin. You could see through it there. And I could only see it from the knees up because of the way the sand was. It was standing over the edge of the river. It had come out, and it was concealed from where my friends were. They couldn't see. You know, it was concealment, but from where I was, it was in the open. And it was quarter away, and I could see like its right, its right shoulder, and some of its right, you know, half right back, if that makes any sense, and one buttocks, and that was hairy, and so were its thighs and its arms. Especially, it was kind of long down at the at the um, forearms, and I got a good look at this thing, and just like that other one. It's oh, it had a neck too, because they say these things don't. It, this thing had a little bit of a neck, and it spun its whole body around, and I could see half its chest. And we're talking muscles, man. I mean, muscles. And it looked right at me, just like this other one, right at me. And then it just dropped out of sight. I mean, it just like someone took its legs right out. It just fell. <laughs> no noise. No, nothing, and that was the end of it. And I had to come by this place by myself. That was fun. I was on high alert. How far was he when you saw him? <clears throat> I had my binoculars out. 150, maybe more yards. But in the binoculars, I mean, he, he looked like he was, you know, in my, he, yeah, I got a good look at him. They were pretty good binoculars. Now, was, he, was he across the river or was he on the same side of the river as you? Same side as me. Remember I had you Google it so you could see what I was talking about? Yes. And there's that little bend you could see up and you could see down. Right. It makes like a very, very shallow V right there after that S turn. Exactly. And then, yeah. 
And then that's the area we've been seeing these men are telling about those rock stacks. Okay, right. <clears throat> so let's talk like, about the rock stacks. Well, they're just, they would take flat rocks and they would start with a bigger one, slightly smaller, slightly smaller, and build them up as high as they could that they fell over, basically. <clears throat> and we see these periodically in that How area. big are the rocks? That's, yeah, how the, the biggest rock at the bottom. Is it something that a, a strong guy could pick up and place there, or is it? Do you think it's too? How like we got, like the University of Virginia isn't far, and if you could take two of them linemen from UVA, they they could have picked up the biggest rock, or two or two country two big country boys, the construction guys, yeah. But one. How big is the rock? No, give, give me. Give me some dimensions, like the length and the width and the height of the, the biggest three, rock. Three foot, uh, three foot round, basically, by uh, maybe okay. six, eight inches thick. Okay. <laughs> so more, it's kind I of mean, a slab then. Yeah, they would use a slab, not rocks, slabs. Okay. And finally, so I'm just going to do some real... them up. All right, let me back up for a second. If you got a rock that big, and you, I'm just doing some quick, uh, real abbreviated calculations, but I'm going to guess a rock like that weighs, I don't know, maybe 700 to 900 pounds. Oh, then no, then they couldn't do that. Three foot by eight inches would weigh that much? Yeah, you can actually go on to, and I could be wrong, it depends on what, what type of rock material, what material the rock granite. is made out of. But, granite. Okay, <clears throat> so granite, granite, you can actually go to, okay, so you can do some calculations. There's uh, websites out there for for doing just that sort of thing where you go to a rock quarry and it'll give you, a, you put in the dimensions and it'll give you a rough, an approximate weight. Now, some of them weren't, that's the biggest one. Right. I mean, some of them, I mean, they were any, you know, from two foot, you know, to three foot. But they were substantial, and they got smaller as they stacked them up. And they probably went, mm -hmm. I don't know, seven, eight, eight high. And they would be topped off with a baseball size rock or something. So and where we, are these located at? on rocks in the river. Right, but I mean, as far as geographically, are these kind of in the, in a little bit of a yeah. wilderness area? No, on the Ravana, okay. on the river. The, you know, the, where, where I okay. saw that, what I assumed is a, is a type four. And the Ravana is, now when I, I looked saw, at it. Yeah, go ahead. I mean, what I saw, I wouldn't call it Sasquatch. I'd call it a caveman. And I mean, if somebody found out about these things, they want to give them voting rights. Well, I'm telling you, you know, you they want to make them people. With... Right? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> okay. I got a good look at this thing. From the back wow. end, I mean, it, but when it turned, I mean, it dropped immediately. But I could see from the side of its face, quarter away, that 
brow bridge and all that. And the hair started back some. It, it didn't come over its face. It was almost like it was half bald, if that makes any sense. Like at the ears, the hairline started at the ear, where the ear would, I couldn't see ears. But assuming that that's where they were, that's where the hairline, if you did a straight line over top. Okay. How long did you have this thing in your sights? Mm. Ten seconds, maybe. And that's a long time. Oh, that's a long when, time. Okay, yeah. And that first one I told you about back in 81, 82, that thing, that was longer. Ford saw me. I don't know, but it was a lot. I had a longer sight into the first one. But, I mean, I was trying to wrap yeah, my mind around that one. And, But yeah, it was busy looking at my friends. So I got a good side quarter, whatever you want to call it. Looking slightly away from me until it turned. And it was instant dropped. Just like I said, like someone took his feet out from under it. Yeah, that's interesting. And that's about all I got, unless y'all got some questions. Well, yeah, I want to go back. So what happened after you saw this, the the, the last one, this Type 4? Um, you're looking at it through binoculars. And what happened from there? Well, I was just, you know, running through my mind what I'm looking at again. And I've been listening to y'all since then, and I said, damn, that's a Type 4. I'm looking at a type four, and then about that time it spun around and dropped. And I had to go, I had to go right past that by myself. So I reached back in the dry bag, put the binoculars away, reached in the dry bag and pull out some protection, which wouldn't have done any good probably, but I still I felt better having it out than having it tucked away in a dry bag. And I got to the other side of the river, away from it, and got through there as fast as I could. To my, I was hollering to my friends, you know, and you know, and they hollered back, "Yeah, hurry up!" So, yeah, I guess that was a good thing <clears throat> for them, you know, whatever it was, to hear someone down there calling to me up here. And then I got by as fast as I could. I mean, I, I was like I had a motor in that canoe. I was moving. I can imagine, right? And what and year was this? My... Twenty nineteen. Twenty eight. No, twenty. Okay, so that's very recent. Yes. Okay. <clears throat> and since then, <clears throat> we've been out, and we just we can't enjoy ourselves like we used to. I mean, every time we hear a twig, you know, anything, a fish jumps and it's a splash. I mean, you know, we, we jump. It just keeps you, it just puts you on edge. You know what I mean? Yeah, it really does. After you've had I've experience ne I've like never, that. I've never felt threatened. 
uh, you know, or anything close to being threatened. But I did sleep through that tent incident, and I was woken up after the fact. But like I said, there was something in the corner. It was wet over there in the sand and, and everything. I mean, it's just an eerie feeling to have to go past where this thing was. Even though it wasn't like, it wasn't as big as that first one, but still. That first one probably weighed about 900 pounds. This one was probably in the five, four, fifty, five hundred pound range. But it was still, it was like Arnold Schwarzenegger. It was V-shaped. It wasn't a barrel, you know. It's a whole different thing than that first one. They look nothing alike. Nothing. You're talking yeah. a, lion versus, a lion versus a cheetah. You know? Two different things. The same thing, but different, if that makes sense. Sure. Well, James, I got to thank you. I really appreciate it. And uh, very interesting. So please stay in touch with us. And do you have any questions for us uh, before we wrap it up here? Um, after we get off of air, I have that one question. Okay, that we that's fine. About. I Absolutely. mean, if, if he wants to... But does Will have yeah, any we, questions we, for me? I mean... I, I don't at the course. moment. I don't at the moment, but uh, we'll be in touch. And and anytime you got a question, you know, get a hold of us. Okay. Alrighty. Well. But but I haven't heard I haven't heard many fours, or what I believe was a four on on the show. Nobody ever talks about them hardly. Right. Right. Um, we'll talk in a moment here off the air, uh, folks. Stand by for the next segment. In Bigfoot history, southeast of Cottage Grove, Oregon, the Cottage Grove Sentinel, July 13, 1972, quotes Bob Bailey, Cottage Grove is saying that while hunting cougar at the head of Mosby Creek, he saw a large animal resembling a gorilla. It walked away from him on two legs, leaving human-like tracks. back from the break everyone for those who are new to the show uh the show is broken up into three segments primarily we do a witness in the first segment second segment we do a q a session general discussion kind of whatever we want to take a direction with the show or this segment i mean and the third segment is story so uh having said that tom and brian and my good buddy milo is joining us today Fellows, I guess we got a lot of questions built up. So, Tom, I'm going to have you go ahead and give us the first one since you said we had a pretty good list. Yeah, we do. Absolutely. And I'm going to start off um, just please like and subscribe and share. It helps the algorithm. And you can also support us with Patreon. And we have a link in the description. Okay. Uh, Mike wants to know, is there an, any update on the Giants from Eastern Canada? And I don't know if that was something we discussed or something he's seen out there, but any thoughts on that? Uh, well, I don't have any updates. I did hear some things from uh, Western Canada and Alaska, but I don't know uh, 
about Eastern Canada. You, any of you guys familiar with that? I'm not. Um, we, <clears throat> yeah, we need a little more specific information, but uh, I'm I'm sure we have the hairy guys, uh, both in Eastern Canada and Western Canada. So, yeah, we we talk to a guy every week that we can ask to see if he's heard anything because he's in the northern regions of the continent. So we'll uh, we'll try to. Uh, see what he's heard if anything and we'll try to revisit this next week brian how about you You got any questions yeah yeah so one thing that i know that people have have brought up in in the past before but what do you think that it will take to to bring this creature down like uh, like I know that in your book you mentioned uh, like certain <laughs> yeah well luck yeah, yeah but I but I know that in in your book you you mentioned um, that one of the people that you talked to said that it would take like a like a certain shot to take this thing down. Well, first of all, I don't advocate anybody trying it, and the main reason for that is you're going to have to deal with the rest of the group. Yeah, these creatures, these creatures are never alone. So if you try to shoot at one, you got problems with the rest of the group. And the groups are anywhere from four to six individuals. Average size could be larger. Tom and I have an area right now. There are 15 of them in that area. So not a good plan. Uh, as far as actually doing it, uh, good question. I don't know. Milo, Milo, what do you think? Well, I, I, I don't go anywhere without my M1 tank. <laughs> Tom, what are your thoughts? <clears throat> yeah, I like Milo's uh, idea, an M1. <laughs> I know. thought he was going to say M1 Grand, but... Uh, <laughs> no, 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 it's kind of like the Jaws. I use Jaws, you know, you need a bigger bolt. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, so and, it, it, if it's... Uh, it, if anything less than an aircraft carrier, I don't go. <laughs> good point, good point. <laughs> you know. But, uh, Milo, I, I, I got to ask you, do you still have that tent from back in the day? Oh, that or, was, was that... even mine. I think that was Will's or Scott or yeah, it uh, wasn't, Paul's. It wasn't mine. It had been Paul's then. Yeah, most likely. Most likely. I'm surprised he could even carry it. No, I'm kidding. He didn't carry it. <laughs> we <laughs> used to carry it. <laughs> we did. You but, and I uh, were the pack horses, I think, most of the time on those trips. Yeah. Well, I, I, um, for me to say or to go back to uh, hunting one down, I guess you want to say it. For, I really think you would have to really know your terrain. If you're going into places, you're not going to. I would say you have to be acclimated to the place you're going first. You, I wouldn't recommend campfires and that kind of stuff. You're going to be basically just eating off the land to to even be equal to it but you're not ever going to be equal to it yeah you'd have, to be, you'd have to be pretty low-key and well yeah well i first you're going to have to be there longer than it just like will have to be a, a big part of it because it, it's going to be like well hopefully it's going to be like an ambush kind of 
scenario where it you it walks in front of you and you're in a blind, but you got to be there more than a week. I would say because that way you you're you you don't you're part of the smell. You're not you're not foreign. Yeah, Is you that, wouldn't, you wouldn't want him to know you were there. Yeah, and then it's like what Will said too. He's not going to be by himself. So you man, you better have a pillbox, dude. <laughs> hey, 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 Will, can I ask a question real quick? Sure. Because uh, I know that we have talked to Milo before, but I've never actually seen him on, in, in person. So this this is really cool. And didn't you say that, uh, well, you talked about this in your, in your first book. Didn't your first experience take place on the railroad tracks? with? And then you, you talked to Milo's dad, right? No, not, that was John. Mm, that was John. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Yeah, Milo. Milo I came didn't in the group till a few years later. Few years later, after that. Yeah, like ninth, tenth grade. Yeah, we were oh. in, we were in junior high when that happened. Yeah. That, but that, that's still like a really cool story. Uh, and just for our new listeners in uh, in <laughs> in this new year, uh, can you tell us a little bit about that? <clears throat> story that when you first saw the railroad tracks and then you 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 met john's father and your whole experience in that well just briefly i mean mark and milo you 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 knew mark barsha oh yeah mark mark came over to spend the weekend and uh, and this was december of 72 it was snow on the ground so there wasn't a whole lot to do on our our farm so we figured, well, let's go over to John's house because he was the closest, and we were all spread out pretty good in that area, all, all of our friends. So John was the closest one. He was probably, oh, I don't know, what do you think, Milo? That's probably, as a crow flies, maybe a quarter mile away. But um, From from, from where your my, house? From my place, yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> so we walked down you know, the road. From my place, I, I would have to, it was like, 20 miles yeah you were you were quite always but that's the way it was i mean that, that area was spread yeah. out everybody lived far apart so we decided to go over to john's house and we figured well maybe the three of us would figure out something fun to do for the day and um we couldn't find the trail in the woods because of the snow so we walked down the road and then got to the railroad line walked up the railroad tracks because the tracks ran right in front of john's house and uh we got about three quarters of the way along the tracks and we found you know, a pile of guts in the in between the rails, and we eventually found footprints of these creatures. Didn't know what they were, so we got to John's house. We told his dad, and he wanted us to go back with all the kids, and uh, took some pictures and took his gun, and then he kind of told us what it was. But um, so that's that. I mean, and then two years later, I, I actually ran into one of the creatures. Two of them, actually. Wasn't one right by you and that's when you and Willie, right? Or is yeah, that the you, same one? You remember you remember that stand of trees that was just out by our barn? Yeah, right in the it, back. It was right in that corner out there. Yeah. Because that's where we used to shoot each other with the cannons. <laughs> yeah, if, if anybody out there has ever made a tennis ball cannon. <laughs> back back in those days you had steel steel soda cans. And we oh cut, we cut the tops and the bottoms off them, except the bottom cannon, and you duct tape them together. And then you could put lighter fluid in the bottom one and stuff a tennis ball on the top and light it, and it would it would fire. 
that's what, I nailed Jeff right in the butt with that thing. Yeah, we we were we were not strangers to shooting each other with things back in those days. <laughs> <laughs> oh god! But yeah, that uh, I think that's when I had a usually when I when because I lived in Puyallup and Will lived in Graham. And for me to go to Will's house, I would have to get go to school, wait, and then we'd go and take Will's bus, and then we would go from there. But that, I'd usually have to wait wait for the weekend to go to see Will. Unless I once I got my driver's license, that was cool. That's <laughs> that's the way it was back in those days. I mean, because you remember Milo, none of our parents were gonna take us anywhere it was like you guys oh, no. if, you, if, no. you, if you guys want to do it it's okay to do it but you got to figure it out yourself okay <laughs> so we did yeah it was like man i was like think oh we got our driver's licenses then we, it got a little bit more it, it, it then it got a little bit better yeah <laughs> tom what do we got we know we got a lot of questions <laughs> all right yeah so Renee wants to know, uh, I was wondering if one species of Bigfoot is taller than the other, and is there one area of the country that has more sightings than the other? Uh, two very good questions. Well, as far as the height issue goes, um, they all seem to be around the same size range. The Type 4s sometimes are smaller, and like I said before, I'm not even certain that's even you know, quote-unquote, a Bigfoot. It's It might be something else. Uh, so, having said that, the other ones do seem to occupy roughly the same range in height. And as far as sightings go, I know there are maps out there showing stuff all over the place. Now, I don't know how accurate those are, but um, for years, the Pacific Northwest has had the majority of sightings. Now, of course, that could change with more information coming out, but as so, it stands, oh, this is, I'm sorry. Yeah, go ahead, Milo. So, is this more, this is more just by uh, uh, correspondence and investigation by just going up and uh, interviewing eyewitnesses, correct? That's, I'm sure there's, it depends on, on the witnesses, and I guess the hard part is the reporting systems and how accurate they are. I mean, there's a lot of stuff floating around out there, and there's really no way to know just how accurate that information is. Yeah, that will that brings up a really good point because there's no central, um, you know, way of collecting this information and collating it. It's it's all um, kind of a hit and miss. So you've mentioned this uh, for every sighting out there. There's probably a good twenty or more that are unreported. You know, here's what he reported to. And here's a problem too. And something I, I see this looking at Facebook periodically is there's anybody and everybody who wants to be quote unquote somebody, you know, creates some little group and they and they're out there looking for witness encounters. You know, they're trying to collect stories. Unfortunately, you know, the first part of that they're, they're it's it's trophy hunting, you know, because they, they collect a number and they say, Oh look, we're important because we've done A, B, and C. Uh, the other part of that is when people report something, how many different places do they report the encounter? In other words, you know, we think, okay, let's just use a random number. We say there's 100 reports for 2021, okay? 
how many times does that one encounter out of a hundred get counted multiple times? Hmm. Yeah. You know, they're see what I'm reinventing saying? the wheel. Yeah, but there, it's, that's right. But also, there's you know, if one person or we have ten different places, you know, out there pushing, you know, whether it's a podcast or what have you, you know, the same story, let's say ten different times, or you know, and people are counting numbers of reports. Well, that's one report. That's not ten. So yeah, it's it's difficult. I mean, it would be a very difficult task to go through and try to call correct information, you know, and, and eliminating uh, repeated stories. Hopefully, that answered the question. Yeah, no, that's. I think it's an excellent answer, and that's a you know that's a good point that I hadn't really considered was the same encounter being uh, repeated over and over again in different locations. So. On occasion, we've had we've had people on the show, you know, witnesses tell their stories that have told them elsewhere. Most of the time, and I, I see this in YouTube comments that uh, people say, "Oh, I heard that story somewhere else," uh, and you didn't. A lot of times, we're the first person, first people they've ever told it to, and the only people they've ever told the story to. So there might be similar stories because there are repeatability and behaviors, and so some stories might sound similar, but oftentimes. And I guess maybe we should say that um, up front in the shows from now on is, you know, this person has never told their story anywhere else. Yeah, kind of like a disclaimer thing. Hey, yeah. I got a question. Yeah. So um, for, for the, how many, okay, first of all, how many types are there? I was told there are four different types, 22 okay. variations. Okay, wow. And then my next, I have another question. What kind of behaviors are uh specific to all of that oh boy <laughs> <laughs> i could i could do a whole book on that probably probably should do Ooh, that at some nice. point yeah dude see um, i give you great ideas that's you do you always have man well i would say generally speaking um they used to call them shy they're not shy they just don't like humans uh, I can relate, and, and there's reasons for that because we've always been a very violent species. So, and not that we're in, and our ancestors probably did go out and kill these things. I mean, there's very strong indications of that, you know, through Native American sources and elsewhere. But um, so that's one reason because we, and not, I mean, we're smaller, we're less capable. However, we're a pack hunter. And and most species out there know that you don't mess with pack hunters, like you know packs of wolves, etc. Humans are no exception. Only we're actually more dangerous because you know we're calculating and we do things for whatever reasons. But these guys are also very have very short tempers and they're vindictive. You know you can slight them for who knows what reason, and, and they will for an extended period sometimes really do violent things around people. So. For instance, like we had a guy, um, a, a researcher in the southeast years ago. He, I interviewed him. The guy's name was Mike, and uh, he was telling me about this area, and I can't remember exactly where it was, which state, if it was one of the Carolinas or, or what have you. But anyway, he talked about this community where these creatures were, had gone in, and they would they would kill the locals' livestock, not eat them. They would just kill and maim them. And everything from a horse down. And nobody ever knew the reasoning why. So, um, but I've heard that 
numerous times elsewhere. So, you know, they got short tempers, they're vindictive, um, secretive to the point because they, they don't want to be around humans when they are seen. It's probably for a very specific reason. They're, they're allowing themselves to be seen. It's not accidental. So um, that's kind of a ballpark window on behavior. So, I mean, there's you could go into lots of individual things, but that's sort of a ballpark idea. So, so Will, why would they kill animals and just not eat them like like what what's their mindset it's probably psychological warfare it's a demonstration they're letting the locals know they're ticked off who knows why you know you you would have to be in their minds to know what it was they were slighted by Yeah, it's kind of interesting you've got the innocent bystanders which is the livestock and the animals you're killing for reasons known only to them we don't understand yeah i mean i i remember him talking about one of the horses that were found and it was its spine was bitten clean through by one of the creatures so i mean just the kinds of things that were going on were incredible Uh, and nobody ever knew what happened why they were doing it wow hey we got a question from tony in australia and thank you, Tony. We we have we're picking up picking up a lot more uh, of an audience from from Australia. So that's great. Um, Tony wants to know, and I've seen this video. There was a guy named Mike Woolley who had an encounter with the Bigfoot, mm-hmm. and the thing that got me, uh, and Will, you're probably familiar with this guy. He was yeah, I knew Mike. Okay, all right, yeah, and the interview with him. If you read, uh, you know, body language and facial gestures, this guy was being truthful. He actually had an encounter with one of these things. Yeah, he And I was quite terrified. Yeah, he was very much so. <laughs> I'm sorry. I know. Why wouldn't you be? I know I was. You're right. <laughs> well, you know, Miley, your reaction is a good one because... Anybody who has actually encountered one of these things, you know, as opposed to people who have the flowery, oh, it was such a wonderful experience. Tree uh, huggers. Yeah. Go hug Well, those, I think those are, I think they've invented those encounters in their minds. And I've actually met people that did that, you know, that, that were, I mean, they were honest to themselves. <laughs> they believed what they were saying, but I knew it was complete horse manures because, um, here's an example. I was sent out on uh, a report in the, in the Columbia River Gorge, and this was in the early early to mid-90s. Took my team out there, and uh, it was right along the river, and we talked to the lady of the house, and she took us out and had an apple orchard. And she sat down under one of these trees, and, and, and I asked, I said, well, were there, are there any signs of the creatures? Did they leave tracks? So we, I kind of wanted want to figure out how many individuals there were, sizes, what direction they were coming from, where they were going to, all that stuff. And she sat down, she says, oh, yeah, you can see them everywhere. If you sit down here for a few minutes, you can, they'll just start appearing. And they were like three feet long, and she had all this stuff, and she believed this stuff. She was convinced in her mind that this was happening. And, and my team members saw that my face was turning red and they ushered me away from her because I was getting ready to kind of go off <laughs> for this nonsense. 
And what had actually happened was there was a graduation party for her kids, and so a bunch of teenagers were there, a big crowd of them. And several of the teenagers had walked away to have a discussion, and this creature come walking up to them, scared the heck out of them. And there were there had been a line of tracks right along the waterway, but the, the tide had come in, so the river raised, and it does in that area. And, uh, and the tracks were washed away. But uh, the kids were the ones that had the experience, not the mother. So until you investigate a little bit further sometimes, but the point is people, you know, like that, they're prone to making things up or and they're not doing it on purpose. She believed this in her own mind. And I don't know what psychology was involved with this particular person, but um, I think it does happen sometimes out there. And, and well, uh, let me just say too that you've talked about this before, but, but context is really important. So you have to investigate the the whole situation and everything that's going on. That's right. If I hadn't looked deeper into the context of that situation, I would have just walked away and said this is nonsense, and written it off. When in fact there had been a legitimate encounter there. Tom, you had questions. Um. So, Milo, don't hold back. How did you feel when you saw that thing? And I needed a bigger bowl. <laughs> I think you might so have I needed was... your underwear changed, too. Oh, that, yeah. But, dude, <laughs> I, I swear. That was good. Jaws reference. Was that? I was could... in my yellow rain suit, was I? I don't remember no, no, if it you, was we, there. It was, was no, we were, when we were in. We were just wearing jeans and. Or yeah, okay. shirts. I, I do. There was one place. I do remember you caught some serious air jumping it up though and screaming. <laughs> I and that, that was Milo, fun. what was your what was your experience or level of belief towards the creatures prior to seeing the thing? You know, I I'm open minded. I I would like to say that when uh, Will told me. Well, I first met Will when we, I think we were in some English literature class and yeah. or communications or something, and we all had to take turns talking. And when Will came up and started talking Sasquatch and Bigfoot, you know, I was like, "Huh, you know, I, I it, this it was a like, oh, no, no, I wouldn't go that, no." I was like, "Cool," but at the same time. Yeah. Okay. This this is crazy crap. I you know it's kind of like ghost stories or whatever. And so I I really did it. But I, two things started to stick out because about that same time there was the um, um, Roger Patterson film that came out and they did that and we went to the Parkland Theater. I watched that and I was intrigued after that. Then I started to hang out with Will a lot more. My look and... up to me after that speech and he says, "Is this crap real?" <laughs> <laughs> really that's what i did and, and there was he goes you know what the best thing i could say is that that's a minute right there because we'll say why don't you come out and find out for yourself yeah. you know yeah i'm not gonna tell you, you, know, it you, was show it, you. <laughs> you know yeah dude i, I want to show you you know and he would show me tracks he would you know we're gonna go camping this weekend why don't you and you come out with us and and hell that's how it all started and that was like in ninth grade yeah that's a you know that's an excellent approach because that's one of the approaches will i've told you that you know people are skeptical 
uh, or you know, a lot of times I you know I run into the debunkers or the ones that are just scoffers and just dogmatic about well, they don't exist. Well, that like, those kind of people get that bitch if they were hung with the new rope. Yeah, I mean, well, I just I, say, hey, what are you doing tonight? I, I'm not. I'm not going to argue with people. I'll take you out and show you. You just, yeah, you decide exactly. for yourself. Yep. I just want to make sure they're a little slower than I am. That's that's my only requirement. Hey, tripping is okay. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Okay. I, I'm joking, of course. Yes. Maybe. <laughs> I'm not. <laughs> hey, hey, Will, do you, do you ever get uh, tired of, of like going out and, and doing more research, or do you, do you still want to do more? Oh, I'll, um, I'll keep going as long as I can go. I mean, I've had periods where I, I really pushed, you know, working field areas, and and a lot of times it's not something you're gonna, you're going to find stuff regularly. You'll go for, geez, you might go a hundred trips out someplace, you know, and spend untold hours and and a lot of physical exertion doing stuff and mental exertion, and come up empty-handed. You know, that's very common. So if you want to get into this subject be prepared for a lot of nothing but um you know then i i take some a little time off and then you know it would say all right you need it's time to get back out there and look so i know I'm, I? I'm not lying to myself i know i'm going to keep looking right can i make a comment on that um this is just my perspective or my uh, limited uh, experience with this but that the uh, the one that I saw in August uh, a year ago, two years ago, well, August of 20, I was in an area <clears throat> that I knew they weren't. They're not there. There's nothing around this. I just knew that it was a complete waste of time. There was zero indication that there's anything there. And the whole time, this thing had been like 30 feet from us. So uh, just just a thought that people can be out there. Um, I just wonder, you know, you're like, there's no indication that they're there. Yeah, they might be. You never know. Well, you know, that's a good point. And, and Milo will tell you, you know, we don't know how many times they're around us. And it wasn't just, well, we were just happened to be in the area where they were. There were actually, the areas we looked at, there were two, kind of a dividing line between ranges. So there were two different sets of groups. And, and sometimes we'd be over in one area, sometimes we'd be over in the other area. And I think we had those inadvertent encounters just because we happened to be in those places, you know, at the right time, you know, when those different groups were there and active. But we have no idea how many there, how many times well, they were around us and we didn't see anything. You know, I, to me, that it's kind of like an experience between some kind of social behavior maybe where, you know, you, you, you got to a torqued off kid who wants to go out and say, Oh, I'm going to go out and show these guys versus the parents going, no, stay here, stay here. You know, who knows? <laughs> right. you know. Well, you know, I'm sure we, we caused enough of a ruckus, you know, they, they probably would have seen us 10 miles away out there. Any one of those trips. Yeah. Well, well, uh, let me ask you kind of a, a follow up to, to, so do we want to say that that was like social? I'm sorry. Oh no no I was gonna Did say Did I interrupt? Oh no no I'm I'm sorry. So so Will I was gonna ask uh to 
Tom's great point. So there are probably many different areas where they see sightings. So I wonder if there's ever been a report where somebody sees or two two different people see the same thing. Yeah. So that's part of the context. You know, when I asked, we talked to a witness you know, one of the first questions in my mind is how many other people in the area saw this? And this goes back to, you know, my initial encounter because I, I didn't think about it at the time, but when I when I went to Green and Hinden's camp and met the state trooper Mark Pittenger, and he and I talked about it and we'd seen we'd seen the same creatures at roughly the same time period, only seven miles apart. And I got thinking at that time, you know, as a as a teenager, I thought, well, how many other people have seen these things and, and not said anything? How do we know? When, in fact, it does happen very common. So, do you, when you go and interview, Will, do you have, like, a structured interview sequence that you use? or? No, I mean, I've done it so much. To me, it's just sort of, you know, I, I'm listening more than talking to the person. Uh-huh. You know, I have that. I want them to tell me in their words. Because see, if you if you come up with a structured interview, okay, and people hear that, you know, from a psychological standpoint, it could it could be in the back of their mind. So then, when they're answering your your questions or talking to you, you know, some of that sequence is already in their mind. So I want to hear it in their words. I want to hear what their mind picked up from that encounter, and then afterwards. You know, I'll fine-tune what I want to know about that. Sometimes I don't need to know anymore. Sometimes I just listen, and they say everything that actually so you're, occurred. So you're, you're basically asking for their their story. I, I want them to tell me in their words, from okay, their, their perspective, words. from their okay. uh, frame of reference, what they experienced. I like that. I like that. Yeah, it's kind I, of like my encounter with Paul. Yeah. <laughs> We won't, I won't go into that. I, I know about those encounters. <laughs> <laughs> my, or I my should love. say, he who shall not be named. Those, those, those were inside stories that are probably better left inside. <laughs> <laughs> it's in the book. You well, know, some of it is. Sure, I left the juice yeah. parts out, though. <laughs> Tom, you know about some of those. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I, I've heard those stories. <laughs> yeah, I, I filled Tom in on some of the better parts, Milo. Oh my God! <laughs> the, not, the not for publication parts. <laughs> gotcha, gotcha. Oh my God! Hey, I got a question here from Mary, and actually, she has a really good question. I've wondered this myself. There's a um, uh, kind of a condition after a. a a, new, a disease, I don't know if it's new or not, but it's the CWD or chronic wasting disease that's affecting elk, moose, deer, and basically it's the spongiform, uh, I think it's prions, that, that it eats up the brain. The brain mm-hmm. just turns into the kind of a kind, uh, kind Swiss of cheese. The mad cow disease, right? Mad cow disease, and it's gone from cows to deer, elk, and moose now. And so Mary wants to know, do we think that Sasquatch can tell the difference between one that is suffering from this condition and one that isn't? And if they did eat one with this condition, would they now be, uh, you know, are they going to get this, is it going to transfer to them? Well, 
you know, animals. It's kind of are, a medical question. I, yeah, I guess I'd have to I'd have to talk to some people who I know that are you know medical professionals. We have we have a guy in our group that's a, an MD and cancer researcher, so I can ask him. But um, and Katie, everybody, some people who listen to some of the older shows. Uh, Katie, Katie's very busy right now. That's why he hasn't been on in a while. But uh, uh, where he's where he's practicing, he's kind of overloaded. So. So we haven't had him on in a while, but I can ask him. He would have some pretty good knowledge about that. Um, you know, animals like deer and, and elk and all them are, are basically kind of related species. So I could see how that would, you know, jump from one to another. But, you know, going from that to primate species, I, I don't know. I, I kind of you know, think it's unlikely, at least at this point. Yeah, and I think, actually, you know, if you want to broaden the question a little bit you would say well hey um you know our current we can't actually say the word uh so one of the youtubers out there refers mm-hmm. to the current pandemic as my sharona <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't get it doesn't get dinged by youtube right, that way right. but you know you wonder if if uh some of the maladies that we have as humans if that ever got transferred to these creatures it would turn into something really nasty well here's the thing i mean you know predators will often target the sick animals that they prey on and it doesn't seem to affect them i mean that's it's kind of nature's way of getting rid of that those individuals so i kind of suspect it doesn't and these guys these things are pretty robust i mean I've seen where they've eaten garbage, and we know they eat garbage. They they routinely uh, go to dumpsters and garbage piles, and you know it's it's what's out there. It's gonna whatever's food availability is out there's gonna attract them. So they got to be pretty tough so, to be able to go through yeah. that kind of stuff and eat out of it. They're they're dumpster divers. They're dumpster divers, and you know there's there's a lot of germs in that stuff. So you know they got to be pretty tough to take that. Yeah, you know just well, real quick on the dumpster diving. Uh, I used to live in an area I, years ago when I was a young man. I lived in an apartment. Summertime, you'd go out to the dumpster, and it was, that thing was rank. You know, you throw your garbage in there and get out of the way as quick as you can. Mm-hmm. I threw it in one time, and a bunch of cats came flying out of there screaming. Oh, yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah, any any predatory animal will go and eat garbage. Well, isn't it more like opportunity or... Opportunity, you know, sure. You know, it's... And, and and something that weighs 800 pounds, I mean, how does it sustain that? It, I mean, look, I know they got to be grazing, like, all the time, right? Well, they eat, but think about it. Now, I'm working on this on the current book right now. Um, okay. And I'll give you one example. Like, deer meat per pound is worth something like 712 calories per pound. And, actually, and a deer will weigh, on average, around 150 pounds. So if you do the math... Um, one deer per day will sustain seven of these creatures because they need about 15,000 calories a day to survive. So it, it's very feasible. And they eat everything. Everything. Everything, including garbage. Ooh, cool. Humans. Sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> so don't, so don't be the happy meal. <laughs> I, I guess it's not really a happy meal if you're on the receiving end of that or, or on the, yeah, the giving they, end of that. That's why they make monster movies, dude. Well, yeah. Don't be the slow one. Don't be the slow guy. That's what we say. And tripping is okay, remember? Yes, tripping. <laughs> 
I love that one. <laughs> tripping. Yeah, no tripping allowed. I'm going to make a t-shirt. No tripping. <laughs> I may be slow, but don't trip. <laughs> Brian, you got any questions? Is Brian still with us? Okay, I've got one. I'll jump in here real quick. Okay. Danny wants to know, um, Will, you've talked about, I think this is what he's referring to, uh, the particulars below. He says there was a bear that you had found that you thought may have been killed by a, a Bigfoot. And what was the reason for that? Why, why did what, what brought you to that conclusion? Well, there were two reasons. And, Miley, you remember Charlie, our, our family friend? Yes. Yes, yes. Well, he's the one that actually found it first. And I don't remember what he was doing when he found it, but Charlie kind of lived off the forests, and, you know, he would, he would, if anything was going on out there, he would know about it. So he thought this was very unusual, so he brought me out there. And this is actually not far from Enumclaw, where he found this, where you live, Milo. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> the, bear, the bear was, uh, it was just bare bones all that was left and some hair so all the meat had rotted away no animal had scavenged on it it was in a place where there were coyotes and there were plenty of dogs you know because of the farms so something would have scavenged on it and, that, and that's just canines we're not talking about all the small rodents and things that would eat a dead animal but nothing had touched this bear the only physical damage we could see was that the front of the the, the whole front of the skull was caved in as to why it would have done it i don't know I mean, unless it had decided it was going to eat the bear and then come back for it. Because sometimes, and we've had witnesses talk about this, where they've watched them in front of them. You know, a group of Sasquatches coming and killing a group of deer. They would hobble them. Remember, Tom? They would hobble the deer yeah. by breaking its front legs. They'd leave it, go after the rest of them, then they would come back and pick up these hobbled individuals. Um, maybe it was going to do that and then it was disrupted by humans or something. Well, that's uh, this guy goes on. Uh, he says he found a cow skeleton seemingly undamaged except for a broken rear leg, uh, possibly a broken neck, head was twisted. Uh, he was told by a ranch hand that the cow's breaking a leg. It's always the front one. Mm -hmm. He says, uh, he goes, well, I would need a sledgehammer to be able to break this substantial bone. Mm -hmm. And he said with all the coyotes around here, it seems... Uh, seems like any skeleton would be broken up while there's still meat on it. So he was just, I think he ran into something and just wondering what uh, what the deal is. So well, who knows? It could have been again. This. There's there's two things going on there. Number one, it wasn't scavenged, uh, and there was a major bone broken in a place where it probably shouldn't have been. And here's the real clincher: there, the the neck was twisted. Yeah, and I've heard that yeah, many times, and even. Uh, Milo, you know that trail we had going from my place to John's? Yep. The last time, I quit I quit going up there because I got growled at going up our neighbor's driveway. And I turned around and said, I ain't going up there again. I mean, that, that, yeah. that all them blackberry bushes are up there. That whole thing shook violently, and I, there was a big, deep growl. There was no bear or anything. I remember. Yeah, I know that place. And then John went up there, and it was late in the day, and he took my dog Willie with him, you know, as an escort. And... uh you know, because he didn't want to go up there by himself, so I let, let him take the dog with him because I knew the dog would come home. And uh, John found a deer up there that had been killed, and its head was twisted. Her neck was twisted, and, and it had been partially eaten. So 
Uh, he quit using that trail after that too, and that was around the same time period. Did it have something that, to do with the deer? What's that? <laughs> I said, did it have something to do with the deer with the twisted neck? Yeah, I think that was a big part of it. Sure. Huh. That one that scared and he, me. And he said my dog acted really strange around it too. I wonder if but, it could have been like a trap. You know. Well, they do bait sometimes. Yeah. Or it had just happened. Well, it could have just happened, and then you know John's approach. Maybe, you know, the creature wasn't that far away. Maybe it hid itself. You know, and then took the deer after John left. I don't know. Nobody ever went back to look. But but that's just an example. I've heard this numerous times. Hey, hey, well, what was the story with your your bull, like like the um the, the cow? Which which one? <laughs> <laughs> and, no, no, the, the bull that that was a huge like predator, and then all of a sudden he got scared. Oh no, no, no! We had there was this was back uh, when we lived on on the Puyallup River. We had forty acres back there <clears throat> before we moved to Graham, and. Uh, uh, the, I don't know, the bull didn't have really play any part there. I mean, I can't remember if we had the bull at that time. We might have, but all the cows were in the barn with their heads poking out, you know, like they were they were scared of something, looking at this tree line. There was some huge thing in at the edge of the tree line just thrashing the brush. And the cow, the cow shouldn't have been up in the barn that time of day. They should have been acres away. Mm. So something, something spooked them, and they went up there to basically, you know, it's kind of a refuge. That was probably, I don't know, probably 1968 or 69, something like that. <laughs> yeah. But, but amazing story, though, about how they probably suspected, or he probably suspected, that, that there was, uh, you know, a Sasquatch in the area. Uh, we don't know. I mean, we didn't know what it was at the time no idea but what, what what was it at the same time period that uh you had your first experience or? no no it was a few years before that oh okay okay yeah that so, wasn't that wasn't until 72 that we found the tracks this would have been 68 or 69 i got i got a question for you then will yeah so when when you lived back on the, the river, and then after your experiences later, did you think, wow, that stuff could have been big? I did. Yeah, I, start, I started to think, because we only moved, as a crow flies, four miles up out of okay. the valley. Right. Uh, and you know that area. You know, you go up yeah, from, the, yeah, from, yeah. from the old soldier's home up to up Cemetery up right. Hill where we lived. It wasn't very far. And, and then I figured out later, well, they were coming down the Puyallup River from Mount Rainier coming down to South Hill area of Puyallup. And, and even Green confirmed that I was exactly right about their movements. So I got thinking, you know, well, the kid that had the, came to our house that night with the, the story about the rock quarry monster and then this other incident. Yeah, I remember that. I, that's when, yeah. I got thinking, okay. well, shoot, I wonder, I wonder if that's what was going on. Maybe these things were coming through at that time because they would have come from that direction. So, yeah, over time, you kind of start putting two and two together and, you know, kind of formulating your, your hypothesis about movement. You know, start connecting the dots a little bit. 
Yeah. See, to me, that seems like absolutely invaluable information and ability to sort of forecast because that's one of the things that you've done is within 30 days you could forecast and predict their location well i i was thinking you know when i lived in vancouver i was thinking about that you know going into the field there and uh, i i would think back about how these different situations would occur you know up north and i just kind of applied the same thinking there and and it's what panned out you know will uh one follow-up question to that is how difficult is to track these creatures like do i mean use uh gps or uh well (laughs) you're you're not going to be out and people people said oh you couldn't possibly have tracked them for 12 years well, he wasn't out in the woods following footprints for 12 years, okay? So anybody who thinks that is incorrect. Um, like Tom just brought up, you know, there are things that go on in areas, like in my experience as a kid and the stuff that was happening in that, that location where we lived there and then in Graham later, uh, you start connecting the dots where these different odd things that didn't fit anything else were going on. In other words, the rock quarry monster, the kid's description, had to be a Sasquatch, right? Uh, because it was this, this giant, man-like, hairy thing that was coming after him. And then the other one, we didn't see it, but there was no... The bear wasn't there. There had been a bear in that area a few years before, but there was no sign of it after that. I mean, my my dad and family friends and everything went out and hunted it. I went with them, in fact, and... Uh, all that commotion, I'm sure, scared it clean out of the country because there was never any sign. And there was, there was plenty of uh, soil that would have shown bear tracks in that area. And I was out there all the time as a kid. I never saw any bear tracks. So whatever was doing that to the brush was not a bear. It was too big. And, and just the way the trees were being thrashed back and forth, I mean, they were violently going left and right. You know, I mean, you'd think the things were practically made out of rubber the way they were bending. But... Um, so, I mean, I, I kind of put that in the same category because it was an unknown and it wasn't anything that we did know. And it certainly wasn't a deer doing that. It was just, it was way too large. Too much brush was being thrashed. So, I lumped it in the same grouping. So, what you do is you start you start putting these puzzle pieces together. And then, if you're, if you're fortunate, a pattern appears. And in Vancouver, it did. So I was able to predict movement, you know, on a 30-day basis. You know, that thrashing, there's, I don't know of any, I mean, it's just not, that's very unlike a bear to sit in one location and try to intimidate by thrashing bush, you know, brush back and forth. Yeah, I mean, I, I could see if, and even if they were trying to get some kind of food or doing something, it wouldn't have been that fashion. It would have been pushed over and doing whatever, you know, it wasn't. This was if something had hands and it grabbed these trees. And it reminded me of Buddy Fight Story, you know, about the creature that went came down to the, him and his a biker buddy and, and started thrashing this stuff back and forth violently. It was making this big display. And that's what it reminded me of. It was that very similar kind of emotion. I always liked that story. I like the, I think he was the, he had a, is he the guy that had another one where... Yeah, he was poaching. Uh, poaching, <laughs> yes. <laughs> and just for those who haven't heard the story, he was poaching. He went out 
he shot the deer and what happened after that well he said it was on a switchback above the road he was on i i, I know the road he was on and there was some snow on the ground and so they they shot the deer on the switchback above them and they decided to go retrieve the deer so they and they, they drove around the corner and by the time they got to it the deer's body was gone and he thought well wow. and he was sure he hit it and then they found the blood trail and this drag marks so they decided to walk away and they followed the drag marks and the blood trail and they saw this creature dragging the thing off by its neck <laughs> and they decided to let the creature <laughs> have the deer <laughs> it wasn't wasn't worth the fight yeah, and there's a there's a moral to this story, and that is, if you're a hunter and you shoot a deer or whatever the game is, and you go to where it is and it's not there, think about it. Yeah, leave the area. Yes. Go back. Go away. Let let the creatures have it. Yeah. <laughs> and it's yeah, not the I first. I remember those kind of days when I was in when I was in Panama. We we went to Cologne and we came back drunk and then we ran over a log and then we went to move the logs so the other guys coming behind us wouldn't get hit by it and it moved. It wasn't the log. <laughs> and you know what? Half of us drunk people go, oh, let's go get it. <laughs> and then a couple of us more sober people would say, wait a minute, we just bounced a quarter ton Jeep over something that didn't even phase it. Why do <laughs> us little skinny little bastards when, oh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, those are the stories, this, right? This, this is the PG version. <laughs> <laughs> uh, don't hold back, Milo. What what was the deal with that? <laughs> oh, well, you just... You know, we came back from Cologne, Panama, and and during the time when we still, you know, had operation of the Panama Canal, and we went into uh, the city, and then came back and back to our camp, and uh, um, ran over something in the road, and it was like, oh man, we better move that log, you know, because. The other guys are probably drunker than we are. <laughs> <laughs> and when they, when it came up, it was kind of like it, it moved by itself. It was like, well, maybe you know, it was like, oh, dude, it might have been an anaconda or a snake or something. So we went after it, and one of us goes, one of the great brains in our group, kind of like Will, you know, <laughs> it's a Will moment. That's what I call that, a Will moment. And he goes. You know, reasoning would think that something that big that we just hit and it's moving and us little skinny bastards want to go in there and capture it. I don't think we're going to come out. Might might be a snack. <laughs> it might be a snack. So, yeah, that, that when I hear that about deers being gone after you shoot it, it's like that, that, that kind of brings me to a will moment. Yeah, it's time to leave. Let, let, the, let the creature yes, have it. Yes, let the creature yeah. have yeah. your kill. Hey, <laughs> you can definitely have that. And it's not the first time I've heard that happening. And, and even John Green has some stories in his books about, uh, there's one, one of the first ones I read, I remember years ago, was uh, I think there was two guys on horseback. I think one was a geologist. I can't remember what the other one was. And they shot a deer near this tree line. And moments later, this creature comes out, grabs the deer, and walks back off into the timber, <laughs> you know, to their shock. Um, you know, so it's, it's something that does happen. You know, Will, uh, let me just uh, jump in here real quick. 
and say that uh, I, I I think that your your point is is correct, and I think that sometimes like we think these things uh, love the taste of deer, but sometimes it's just about calories, like like you said, uh, like I mean they have so much calories in their in, in their meat. Yeah, I mean it's there's there's enough out there to sustain them way more than enough, and I think. I think the uh, figure I read recently on the deer population, I think it's nationally, was something like 30 million deer. So, and that's just deer. There's lots of animal species out there, so they have lots to eat, and they supplement their diet with vegetation and garbage. And, you know, and not just that, they come around uh, suburban areas, and they eat animal food and the pets. Uh, Yeah, (laughs) pets. Yeah, they do. They do. Well, we we just had like two cougar things, right, like down the street from us, down in yeah. either Buckley or uh, no, it's Sumner, Sumner. Yeah, those uh, those animal populations are increasing too, and they're getting bolder because people don't go out and shoot things anymore like we used to. So now these animals are coming close to people because they know nothing's going to happen to them. Criminals. <laughs> You hit the nail on the head, Lionel. I have always thought that. Fugitives <laughs> running around out there. <laughs> yeah, I got banned off of Facebook for that. <laughs> Not Facebook. Don't say it so. <laughs> yeah, I get thrown in jail every 30 days for 30 days. <laughs> but anyway... No, I I know for uh, uh, a lot of things I want to uh, try to get back out to the field and uh, I'm prepping the RV. I got my solar stuff ready. Um, so I my question to Will is: Is there preference to terrain? And then two, um, well, what was I going to say? Some about photography and stuff like that, right? Where the old places that you went by yourself and then we we were we were going to go some route where i either take a video of the places that you went and we got away from that something i was waiting on from you and then we got sidetracked yeah but there were some places that you wanted pictures or and video of yeah there is actually and then somehow we got away from that yeah my friend adam's got got a list of things he'd like to have if you could go to those places and, and shoot some yeah, video yeah, that'd be great or you can tell me later or yeah i'll, I'll you text you to... the information okay yeah that, but i know th- that would be a huge that... help yeah 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 absolutely and I'll, I'll get scott and he'll get me off my my lazy procrastinating butt <laughs> Ooh, i was gonna say a nasty bird <laughs> Well, we got a few minutes left, so Tom, Milo, Brian, do we got any more questions we'll give the listeners out there? Yeah, I, I have some, but um, we can save it for for next week. If, no, no, uh, go ahead and go ahead and dive in there. How about it? I like this. I, I feel like I'm a part of a group. Actually, Milo, we'd like to. We wanted to ask you, formally invite you, if you wanted to come on every week with us. Heck yeah! Okay, I'm here, dude. Yeah. All right, yes, good I'm, deal. I'm, I'm, I'm okay. invited. I'm a part of the group. You are Jeez, part of the group. Crackers. 
You want me to? You want me to do my 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 my, my happy my happy dance? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so, so Milo, like, it's great to welcome you. That that's thank awesome. you, thank you. I like it. I like it. Well, we're just about out of time, fellas. Any last thoughts or comments or questions? No, just, no, get, just to to me, get back to me. I'm sorry. No, I was going to say, uh, welcome aboard, Milo. Good to have you, you on. Yeah, I like it. I like it. But, uh, no, we'll get back to me about the pictures, videos, and that kind of information that you want. Yeah. And then I'll be happy to go do that. Okay, cool. Yeah, I got a, I got a number of stuff. And I'll, I'll give you Adam's. Uh, contact information so you can send the stuff directly to him. Oh, okay, cool. Brian, Tom, anything final from you guys? I just want to uh, say I really enjoyed today's discussion, and Milo, good to have you here. And and yeah. uh, so that's it. Uh, yeah. Thank you very much. Uh, good, yeah. good. Uh, a lot of good questions today. I liked it. That was pretty well. That was. I liked it. I enjoyed it. Yeah. L- love to have you on, Milo, because, you know, <laughs> well, I wrote a whole screenplay, and, and you were involved. But, oh, boy. Uh, Who, who's playing yeah, my part? It, it, it was on <laughs> Will, Will's book. Can I? And, yeah. And I, uh, I'd love to have you on. And, yeah. Uh, I want Gerard Butler to play me. I, I was just going to ask you who you'd have play you, Milo. <laughs> <laughs> who? I was going to ask you who you would have. Who would be your choice Gerard to play Butler. you? Yeah, he, he doesn't. He and, doesn't mess around. I watched. You know, Olympus has fallen. He he don't mess around. Yeah, yeah. And Will, just like one last question: What do you think that these creatures do with the dead bodies? Do they bury them or their dead bodies? The creatures? Well, it's it's an unknown, but they're. <clears throat> You know, I mean, they could eat their own, they could bury their own. There's some information out there that kind of points to both those directions, but we don't really know. Yeah, it, it's kind of an unknown. Right. Yeah. yeah. All right, everyone. Okay. Well, before we go off to the next segment, um, you know, Brian mentioned his screenplay, which is actually very good. So if there's anybody out there interested in a screenplay, if they want to create something really interesting. Um, That's cool. Brian, do you want to give out the information where they could get that information from you? Well, they can contact me at um, Brian, B-R-I-A-N underscore rap, R-A-P-P, at yahoo.com. So, and the, the whole thing, it's it's on the... Uh, it's on Creek Devil. It's on creekdevil.com. Okay. Yeah. Right okay. on the front page, you can pull it's it down cool. from there as well. Yeah, yeah, and also it's on there. Yes, yeah, Excellent. and also um, it's on the, the Writers Guild of America. So, and by the way, <laughs> since uh, well, I'll just say that I'm also writing two new screenplays. Um, actually, uh, actually, one book that's on my cat. Um, <laughs> And also on um, another screenplay that's on going to be on the writers guild.com, but it's about um, Harry Beecher Stowe, who is, by the way, my, my uh, great, 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 great grandmother. 
So I'm going to be, yeah, I'm going to be writing about that. And I'm going to be doing like a three-part trilogy on uh, Uncle Tom's Cabin. So Nice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So if, I don't know if you ever read Uncle Tom's Cabin. Oh, yeah. Yeah, but it, but it's the biggest selling book of the, you know, the 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 nineteenth century, and so I'm going to be doing a kind of a, a trilogy of the entire book because if you if you read the book, it's actually a really long book that needs to be put into like three parts. So I'm going to be doing that. And then also, like I said, I'm doing a, um, a book on my little kitty who, you know, passed away this past year, but, um, it's going to be a whole thing about the Russian blue cat and so forth. So I, I've, I've gone on long oh, enough. Heck, I like to look at that stuff. That So Brian at rap, Dot yeah. Yahoo.com. Yeah. All right. My, my... And then more, the contact is most of the information is on Creek Devil, so I can go in there and look yeah. for that. Yeah. Too. All right, everyone. Yeah. Okay. Go on. If you're interested in, in Brian's screenplay based on my second book, uh, Witness of the Unknown. Oh, not Witness of the Unknown. See, I've, I've gotten eight books in print. The ninth one's in the process, so my brain is kind of in different sections. Yeah. My second but, book is called. Then you have to deal with me. <laughs> I've been dealing with you for a long time. Uh, I know, dude. The book is my book is In Search of the Unknown, and Brian's screenplay is actually very good. That's based on that book. So, having said that, folks, yeah, go to creekdevil.com, and you can also check out my website, williamjevening.com. So, stay tuned for the next segment, folks. In Bigfoot history, near Weaverville, California, winter 1934. The Humboldt Times, Eureka, November 18, 1960, carried a photograph taken by Dave Zebo, Arcata, in 1934 showing bipedal tracks, which he followed to the peak of a 6,900-foot Weaver-Bali mountain. They took strides of up to six feet, despite the deep snow and the steep slope. Welcome. This is a collection of six stories being brought to you by William Jevning and are being narrated by me, Jim Sower. Story number one, Wilaki Campground. Two, Klamath, California. Three, Little River State Beach. Four, Lucerne Valley. Five, Night Stalker of Edwards Air Force Base. And six, A Scary Experience in Northern California. Story number one. Wilaki Campground, King Range, California. Strange sounds, Bigfoot, occurred in California the evening of September 13, 2001. Humboldt County, California, September 14, 2001. Last night, my girlfriend and I were camping in King Range, northwest coast of California, at the Wilaki Campground with only one other set of campers. We heard a very distinct thumping sound of heavy footsteps in the area about 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. 
The next day, on the way home, we spoke about it. We both immediately concluded it had to be something capable of heavy footsteps. Having both experienced multiple bear encounters, we could easily rule out a big bear or other similar four-legged beasts. As a result of the experience, we both very quickly shifted from Bigfoot skeptics to interested parties. Having read some information on the web, it seems a possible hearing of Bigfoot is uninteresting, given all the sightings. Nevertheless, I felt confident enough that these unexplained sounds may in fact be valid, and therefore felt compelled to share them. The sounds were roughly one and a half seconds apart, and were quite heavy, much more than a human could be. We both got a good listen, given that we were in our sleeping bags, ears near to the ground at the time. We both independently thought footsteps must belong to that of a sizable creature. If I had to guess, I would say that the weight would be around 500 pounds and possibly more. The direction was unclear, however. I suspect the distance was within 100 feet and probably were 40 to 50 feet at the closest point. I did exit the tent briefly to relieve myself at a nearby tree during this time. The sounds came to an immediate halt. I could not see anything with my headlamp. I might have contacted the nearby campers regarding the incident, however, they had left earlier that morning. Although I was able to find plenty of information in terms of what Bigfoot looks like, I was unable to find information regarding walking sounds to confirm my suspicions. Any information provided would be welcomed. Also, if you think we could have heard something else, please offer an explanation. I am seeking to explain the incident. This is the end of story number one. Story number two. Klamath, California, September 25th through the 29th, 1992. The Triplicate Newspaper by Steve Selke. Daryl Owen's 8-year-old son and his 12-year-old friend were out looking for snakes on September 12th when, at about 11.30 a.m., they heard branches rustling and smelled a strong odor. The smell was like rotted chicken. It was awful. When we looked up, we saw the big hairy man standing there, about 100 feet away. He was covered with thick, dark brown hair and was shaking a branch in his hand. We could see his face real good. My friend and I looked at him for about five seconds before we turned and ran all the way back home. As the boys turned to head for home, they saw the creature turn and walk into the brush. After questioning the boys, Daryl Owen went back out to check the area. As I headed out there, the phrase the boys used to describe what they had seen kept echoing over and over in my head. The big, hairy man. Not Bigfoot, not Sasquatch, not even Harry from the movie. Nope, they kept calling it the Big Hairy Man. Looking back on it now, I guess that should have been my first clue there was something very unusual about their story. Sure, it was wild, but somehow it just didn't have a false ring to it. And as for the kids themselves, well, there was no faking what they were feeling. They were scared to death. When I got to the spot where the boys said they had seen the big hairy man standing, my life was changed forever. 
As I went out to the creek bed, I figured I'd find bear tracks or nothing at all, in which case I would then know that the boys were lying about what they had claimed to see. Instead, I looked down and saw these huge footprints in the ground. I just froze. I came back on Tuesday to make a casting because when I first saw these tracks, I sort of freaked out. I could clearly hear something crunching through the thick brush going up the steep hillside. And when I heard that and looked down at the tracks heading in that direction, all I wanted to do then was get the heck out of there. Sixteen and a half inches long, eight and a half inches wide. The cast measures sixteen and a half inches long, eight and a half inches wide at the toes, and five inches at the heel. Owen counted thirty-four footprints with an average stride of fifty-six inches. Scott Harriet, Los Angeles, arrived in Klamath, and the men spent three days examining the scene. A few strands of brown hair were found. And then there are the screams. The screams began the night after the boys' sighting. These screeches have echoed across the canyon behind our home almost every night since, and there is more than one of them because you can hear a call and then an answer from another hilltop. The screams usually occur between 9 o'clock and 10 p.m. John Green, speaking to reporter Selkie from his home in Canada, said, Keep in mind, Bluff Creek is only about 25 miles due east of Klamath, but it is another world in environmental habitat terms. I don't know, but perhaps the drought has motivated them to travel westward toward the cooler coastline, like other wildlife has done recently. Darrell Owen reported sighting the creature, which looked directly at him from behind some bushes. It had deep-set eyes and large, close-together nostrils, and its face was dark burnt orange in color. The hair was long enough to flow as it turned its head. Scott Harriet returned to Klamath last week, October 12th, and hiked the area with Darrell. Both were armed with camcorders. Scott likens the heavy underbrush to jungles in Vietnam and says the visibility, even at midday, is poor. Nevertheless, the men found themselves looking at something with red, glowing eyes. The eyes glowed red twice, like the voltage was turned up and then down. The screams have continued nightly, and after the triplicate, reported Steve Selke became involved in the Sasquatch research. A friend of his said he was near Davis Lake in Oregon when he heard the screams for 20 minutes. This ends story number two. Story number three, Little River State Beach, Humboldt County, Northern California. Two summers ago, the wife and I were camped along the Little River State Beach just north of McKinneyville, California. I've been retired for five years now. My age is 70. We had been there with family and some friends and had just finished surf fishing along about dusk, I believe it was. Four of us were sitting around the picnic table, relaxing, talking. Sarah brought to my attention a man strolling at a pretty good clip from the direction of the highway towards the ocean. I nudged my brother-in-law and said, Hey, Everett, look at that blankety-blank guy. Naked as a blankety-blank jaybird. We all turned to look, 
this guy was huge, covered with hair, or in a costume, don't know which, and really moving out about thirty feet away from us. We all agreed he must have been about seven feet tall or better. Must have weighed better than six hundred pounds, because me and Everett's combined weight is five hundred plus, and this guy was much bigger than two of us put together. The wife noted that he was a candidate for an ugly contest, looking much like a blankety-blank ape, if you know what I mean. He was a hell-bent on getting somewhere fast, and the only place in front of him was the Blue Pacific. Sure enough, we watched him charge out into the ocean and disappear into the darkening waters. We took a high-beam flashlight and went to take a look. The tracks in the sand must have been two of my feet long and some wider, so as we know we weren't seeing things. If that don't beat all, the blankety-blank experiences I had in my life, I don't know what to do. My son-in-law found your website on his computer. We have read the ancient mysteries narration and think we've seen a Bigfoot by chance. We was too stupid to be afraid at the time, but after reading your webpage, don't think we'll ever be doing any fishing in California no more. We think the blankety-blank bastard may have drowned itself. F. L. Monroe, Jackson, Mississippi. That's the end of the Little River State Beach. Story number four. Lucerne Valley, San Bernardino County. This email was originally called 1988 Cement Monster, thanks to Doug and also to Peter Gutia. I really liked your page on the Desert Bigfoot. I used to be stationed at 29 Palms from 86 to 89. I spent a lot of time in the Joshua Tree Monument, but never saw anything of real interest, if you know what I mean. Where I did see something was with my Marine buddy Mike in the spring March of 1988, after leaving Big Bear Lake. We'd been snow skiing all day at Big Bear. Now, as you probably know, the quickest way to get back to 29 Palms is to take the shortcut route through the desert. I believe it goes through, or very near, Apple Valley. It eventually comes in the back way to Yucca Valley after passing through Landers. Yes, I know you know the right highway. Okay, here goes one of the coolest things that I ever saw during the 1980s. Mike and I had just left Big Bear. It was about 9 o'clock p.m. We were completely down from the mountain and just entering the desert, still kind of going downhill. On the right-hand side of the road, there is a cement factory, sort of all by itself. There isn't any civilization around for about 10 miles or so, which isn't uncommon for the Mojave Desert. Mike was driving, I believe, I saw it first. From the left side of the road, something very large seemed to stand up on two legs and run across the road. The bottom half looked human, covered with hair. The top half wasn't very visible, but appeared monsterish, scary, in other words. The headlights only got the bottom half, and the damn thing ran out about 150 feet in front of us. It made it across the road in three strides. I distinctively remember seeing the arms pumping back and forth, just like any of us would do if sprinting across the road in front of a car. It appeared to be eight feet tall. Now for the interesting part. I didn't say anything. I just kind of glanced over at Mike. He just kind of glanced back at me. 
Then we both looked right at each other. What the hell was that? I said. That was the cement monster. After him! Mike slammed on the brakes and turned around. I started digging through the glove box looking for his wife's pistol. I said, go down that dirt road, still looking for the pistol. About three hundred feet down the dirt road was an old cement factory, but no sign of the thing that ran out in front of us. So we drove around a little bit, but didn't see it. We just accepted that we had simply seen some sort of a prehistoric man, and that was that. And it was no big deal, and maybe someday we might be privileged enough to see another. That's the end of reading number four. Story number five. The Night Stalker of Edwards Air Force Base. From the files of the late Bobby Ann Slate, Bigfoot Investigator. It was a routine night at the Edwards Air Force Base, Air Security Police Desk, until the frantic call came in from the patrol on duty at the restricted site known as Project Logic. The man's voice was urgent and high-pitched with fear. Send a patrol, quick! There's this huge form coming toward me. Hurry! His voice trailed off, and the sounds of gunshots could be heard through the receiver. Then there was nothing but an ominous silence. When the patrol arrived, the guard was found in a dazed, incoherent state after having fired the full magazine in his gun. The Office of Special Investigation, OSI, was called in. According to one military source, the patrol vehicle was found overturned, the patrolman's rifle snapped in two, and huge, five-toed, bare, human-like footprints crisscrossed the site. The patrolman had not been injured, but was terrified. While no official report of this incident can be found in the archives of the base's historical department, the rumor circulated throughout the Air Force Police that the man at Project Logic was deeply affected by his encounter that night. They said he was placed in a military hospital and eventually sent to an overseas base. In the spring of 1974, Edwards Air Force Base security policeman, Sergeant Michael House, was on night patrol on the outskirts of the powerful communication site known as Mars Station which maintains radio contact with other military installations around the globe. A nearby microwave tower, looming like a lonely sentinel in the darkness, stood surrounded by a wooden fence posted with signs advising that explosive devices, electrically operated or magnetically charged, would detonate within a certain radius. Sergeant House was patrolling in the area of the abandoned sled track, once used for testing G-forces, when he saw it. I'd gotten a new spotlight and was trying it out, the sergeant said. Heading back to the main base, I noticed maybe 200 to 300 yards to my left, these large blue eyes. I do a lot of night hunting, and it was strange. They were larger than anything I'd ever seen before. Their diameter had to be about four inches apart and seven feet off the ground. I stopped the truck and sat there watching them. It was too dark to see any body shape to the thing, but the blue glows proceeded towards my truck at right angle for about 100 yards and then stopped. The hair bristled on the back of the patrolman's neck as the larger-than-human eyes began circling and again moving closer to his vehicle. A rank smell like something rotten permeated the air. The thing moved closer again, now coming to within 
fifty yards of the truck, but still its shape could not be discerned through the brush in the desert. Just at that moment the truck radio advised Sergeant House that he should proceed directly back to the main base, and he quickly left the area. He returned three hours later, but there was no trace of the blue eyes. Rain washed out the possibility of locating any tracks the following day. The movement of the eyes was extremely fast, Sergeant House recalled. Another thing that bothered me was that they didn't bob up and down. It was like two lights on a wire moving from one point to another. He was ribbed a good deal while making out his official report on the incident, which was to set the standard of non-reporting from uh, other patrols that encountered strange things in subsequent months. The commanding officer wanted to believe that his men were simply overly imaginative. After all, the desert could produce some eerie effects at night, and then, too, reports of fantastic creatures in and around restricted areas didn't look good in the official log. You're only hearing the wind, he told the men staffing the Mars station on the midnight shift, who said that they'd been hearing some unusual sounds, as well as seeing the dark figure form of something walk past a building, a figure which would have to be almost eight feet tall to be seen through the high windows, something which stepped on and pulverized a glass soda pop bottle in his path. In several instances, calls to the air police about creatures moving in the desert did turn out to be wild burrows moving silently through the sage at night, and that while their eyes are blue, there is almost no reflection due to limited pigmentation. If there were official investigations by the OSI, the men on patrol seldom heard the outcome unless there was some natural explanation. Thus, they wondered about the rumor circulating that the three men on duty at a complex near the bombing range had called in for help. As the story went, when the patrol arrived, they found the security guards unconscious. The door leading into the building was ripped off its hinges, and the sophisticated electronic equipment within had been demolished. Just a tale? It was told to an air policeman by a member of the patrol investigating that call for help. The rocket propulsion lab lies on the eastern edge of Edwards Air Force Base and utilizes a vast area of the facility. It contains installations ranging from gigantic multi-million pound thrust rocket stands to smaller, highly specialized test equipment which can capture and instantaneously analyze the exhaust gas produced by a rocket engine. It is here that rockets and similar hardware are tested for the study of propulsion equipment under conditions of long-term exposure to the environment. It is also here that weapon systems are developed and tested. Certain areas are off-limits to civilians and signs warned to keep out of the potentially toxic areas. Air Police Sergeant Barton had an open mind about creatures. His relatives in Missouri had seen and shot at the mammoth Bigfoot-like monster known as Momo, and though he trusted their accounts of the incident, he also realized the doubt and ridicule they were subjected to when they talked about it. As a result, no formal report was made to the air security police concerning what happened in the winter of 1974, while Barton was on patrol in the vicinity of the rocket propulsion laboratory, 
and the strange blue lights he saw in the nearby mountains. Assuming the lights to be from a car, Barton drove toward them in order to intercept any unauthorized trespassers. The lights vanished when he arrived at the site where he had last seen them, but now he found his vehicle mired in the soft desert sand. Walking approximately two miles back to base, the sergeant intercepted a patrol, and they radioed for a tow truck. When the truck arrived, and everyone returned to the sergeant's vehicle, they found three towed tracks measuring 14 inches long, with what appeared to be a clawed digit at the heel. The wind was blowing soft sand, and the footprints were filling in rapidly, making any precise identification difficult. But whatever it was had completely circled the truck, as if inspecting it, and then walked off on two legs into the desert. Three weeks later, and also on patrol, Air Patrol Sergeant Jones was parked in the region of the rocket site. It was close to midnight. The moon was up when suddenly Jones noticed a shape moving across the skyline of a nearby hill. While he couldn't estimate its height, the trunk area or girth was described as immense the sergeant quickly grabbed his radio microphone and called HQ. Tell the replacement to hurry up. I might need some help, he urged. As Jones looked back again to the hill, two large luminescent green-blue orbs, like eyes, were moving toward him. They didn't really seem to me like they were bouncing the way a person's would when walking, he said. They kind of floated or were moving on an easy glide. Car lights appeared down the road, and the patrolman lost no time in getting out of his truck and walking to meet the vehicle. At that moment, he was extremely grateful that the men had responded so quickly to his call for help, but that wasn't actually so. The other vehicle had been ordered into the area in response to a report about strange lights being observed in the hills. Yet, no unauthorized cars had been located, and now the glowing eyes had disappeared. All that remained in the vicinity were unusual marks on the ground. The two rounded depressions measured six inches and two inches in diameter, respectively. They were all over the place, Jones said. There were so many of them that I couldn't follow any trail. Barton, who had found tracks around his truck a few weeks earlier, said they were similar to what he had seen. The other man, along on patrol, didn't get out of the car. He said he didn't want anything to do with it. Can anybody blame him? That's the end of story number five. Story number six. A Scary Experience in Northern California, 2004. I would like to share an experience we had last month in Northern California. My brother Zachary and I went to do a little gold panning in the rivers and creeks that encircle the Marble Mountain Wilderness. We know that there has been extensive dredging activity there, along the Salmon and Klamath rivers, and some of the surrounding tributaries. We are not looking to get rich. Just the sight of a little color in our pans is a great feeling. I'm kind of guessing at the exact area, but we had started our run from the south in the hamlet of Etna. We proceeded to encircle the Marble Mountain area, planning on going through Happy Camp, and returning north to Oregon after hitting Highway 5 near Eureka, California. 
We were waiting in the river just outside Forks of Salmon, looking for paydirt, when we heard a kind of scream coming from across the river. It was probably eighty yards wide. We thought it might be a bird or mountain lion, but felt safe on our side of the river. We were panning anyway, and heard a splash, and looked up to see a big stick that had hit the water, and was floating downstream. It could not have fallen off a tree, as none overhung the water at the point of entry. We sat up and observed the other bank. A rock also came flying into the water, and while it was not nearly close enough to threaten our safety, it hit the water about halfway, and from the splash it was sizable. I'm guessing ten inches around. I don't know a human that could throw a rock that big that far. We decided we were not wanted there, even though it was public access. As we picked up our pans and gear to head back to the truck, we again heard more of the screams. This was about 10 a.m., and we stopped to eat a bit later, somewhere after Sums Bar and before Clear Creek. We pulled into a camp area for lunch and met a couple of Native American gentlemen who were outfitted for fishing. We asked if they had ever fished where we had been panning, and they had. We related our experience, and they said, and quite matter-of-factly, that most likely it was Bigfoot who resented our presence. We had only seen some foliage moving, but even looking through binoculars could not see any hair or body that would identify our subject as an animal. Interesting to us, not so much that we were run off by something, but that our Bigfoot suspicions were confirmed by locals, to whom such an experience was seemingly so commonplace. We plan to return later in the year, and will be armed with cameras and tape recorders. It was unnerving, but exciting at the same time. I later learned that these local natives are not generally given to sharing lots of lore or information, but I guess we were visibly agitated by our morning. We will try to warm up to some of the locals and see if there might be any other areas where such events occur. Alfred Red Cody Wednesday, July 7, 2004, 9.53 a.m. This ends the reading of the six stories. Thank you for listening. Welcome. This is a collection of three stories being brought to you by William Jevning and being narrated by me, Jim Sower. Story number one. Many names. Alaska's Bigfoot. 1994. Alaska's Bigfoot. Bigfoot has been reported in several parts of Alaska. The Clinkett Indians of southeastern Alaska call it Kushtaka. The Denina Indians of south-central named it Nintina. The Eskimos of southwest Alaska call it Ureuli, or Hairy Man. John Active, a Yupik storyteller from Bethel, has gathered a large number of accounts told by the Yupik people of southwestern Alaska concerning their encounters with Ureuli. This being was described as standing ten feet tall, covered with hair, with glowing eyes. Its arms were so long they reached to the creature's ankles. It was said to roam the tundra and cry out its loneliness with a voice resembling that of a loon. 
although its appearance terrified the persons confronting it, the Uriuli never harmed anyone, according to the accounts gathered by John Active. However, legendary accounts lore has it that children who disappear while in the woods are transformed into Uriuli. The southeastern Kushtaka has a less benevolent reputation. The natives feared the creature and avoided its habitat. Harry D. Culp described a miner's encounter with the Kushtaka in an account which was later published as The Strangest Story Ever Told. Culp and three other prospectors teamed up in 1900 at Wrangell. They sent Charlie, one of the four, to Thomas Bay to look over a gold prospect, while the others sought grub stakes to pay their expenses. Charlie went about fifty miles up the coast to this location. There, the rains kept him confined to his tent for several days. He then went out, trying to locate the landmarks given to him by an Indian. By chance, he found a gold-flecked quartz ledge, and loosened a piece with his gun breaking his gunstock in the process. As he was taking his bearings, he said, a troop of creatures he called devils that looked like both men and monkeys swarmed after him. These shaggy beasts with long, coarse hair, stinking and covered with sores, pursued him back to his canoe. During the chase, they screamed and scraped his back with long, claw-like fingers. Charlie said he came to in his canoe, which was drifting at sea. He was cold, hungry, and thirsty. He returned to his comrades with nothing but the clothes on his back, his canoe and oars, and the chunk of gold quartz. He declared he had enough of Alaska. In exchange for his passage back to Seattle, he told his tale to the other three. Two more of Colt's partners returned to the site of the gold-speckled quartz ledge. Once again, they returned with strange tales of devils. One of the partners was said to have gone mad. Other prospects who have scouted the same area were reported by Culp to have suffered frightening experiences and to have behaved in a strange manner afterwards. Mysterious happenings occurred as late as 1925 when a farmer reported losing a dog in the hills there, but finding strange tracks, with a hind feet resembling a cross between a bear's and a human's footprints. A trapper in the area disappeared. Searchers found his outfit and tracks, but no trace of the man. The Iliamna region not only has a fish monster, but also is a home to Big Man as the natives call him there. For years, Big Man has been blamed for stealing fish from the villages and for mysterious disappearances of people. More recently, Federal Aviation Administration worker Jim Coffey said an eight-foot humanoid almost ran him off the road in New Halen near Lake Iliamna. That same night, a woman living nearby reported that a Bigfoot left watermelon-sized footprints in her yard and tore down her laundry. Investigators found huge footprints alongside the road. At 24 inches long, they were the largest Bigfoot prints ever found. That's the end of story number one. 
Story number two. Expedition sets out to find unknown creature. The Ukumar? March 2nd, 2003. Expedition sets out to find unknown creature. Mitan, Argentina. Police, backwoodsmen, and firemen seek out strange animal. Rosario de la Frontera footprints found. And strange howls heard. Reinforced by personnel from Mitan, the research team is trying to lock down a wooded area. A team composed of over 20 policemen from Rosario de la Frontera and Mitan, some 15 mounted backwoodsmen, 12 members of the Ciudad Terminal Volunteer Fire Brigade, and journalists from the local TV station El Tribuno, and regional broadcasters, is covering every square foot of a densely wooded area where eyewitnesses claim having seen, less than 72 hours ago, the strange humanoid creature that has startled residents of the province's southern reaches. The Ukumar, as the citizenry has incorrectly christened it, would be a two-meter-tall biped with a hairy body, large claws and ears, and fierce carnivorous habits. The true Ukumar, also known as the spectacled bear, is the only South American plantigrade, but it is herbivorous, easily frightened, and a resident of the tropical rainforests, measuring no more than 1.20 meters. There is no evidence that it exists in the country, although there are specimens in captivity in Bolivia and Ecuador. The operation combing the woods for this strange beast is under the command of Sheriff René Tocacho and José Ezequiel Alvarez, commander of the Volunteer Fire Brigade and of the Juan Carlos Rivas Archaeological and Paleontological Research Group. The expedition aimed at capturing the strange specimen began on Friday at 2100 hours without police support, which was incorporated yesterday in the likelihood that the hominid may in fact be prowling the area. The fact is that the participants in the search, unarmed, heard strange howls, and found prints that evidenced the recent transit of a heavy, two-legged animal at around one o'clock in the morning. Miguel Moreno, a cameraman for a Rosario television station, said, At one point we heard the crackling of leaves and saw a silhouette which vanished quickly into the dense vegetation. Local dogs, a pack of over thirty, began barking furiously. One of the hounds, he added, went after the thing, and we heard it growl in the darkness, but then there was silence, and the dog was never seen again. The search area is located in the vicinity of the municipal garbage dump, three kilometers away from the center of the city, where there are trees, overgrown pastures, and all manner of shrubbery. We were unarmed and did not dare go deeper into the area for fear of an eventual misfortune resulting from an attack, said Jose Ezequiel Alvarez, who requested police support in order to continue. His request was granted yesterday when 20 elements from Rosario de la Frontera, reinforced by personnel from Regional Unit 3, headquartered in Mitan, joined the search. Papo, one of the firefighters who participated in the first expedition, said, I'm sure of having seen something resembling a large monkey, although the image was fleeting since it vanished quickly into the dense brush. 
At the close of this edition, members of the search team were getting ready to quit without having found the key to the door to this mystery, which has kept Rosario residents on tinterhooks after recurring accounts of encounters and sightings of the odd hairy hominid. Article, courtesy Alejandro J. Cordoba, A.R. Copyright, Diario El Tribuno, Salta, Argentina. This is the end of story number two. Story number three. Bigfoot and Betty Allen. By Don Davis. Copyright 2002. The headlines of the small November 1963 issue of the San Francisco Territorial News screamed, Story behind the Bigfoot mystery, complete in this issue. Well, how could anyone resist buying that? Especially as it seemed you could unlock the mystery with only a ten-cent purchase. Of course, the fact that the November 1963 edition was on the newspaper rack in the spring of 1964 might discourage some from buying it. The paper didn't unlock the Bigfoot mystery for me, but it was perhaps the best dime I ever spent. It pointed me to the Presidio Branch Library in San Francisco, where an exhibit of Bluff Creek Plaster tracks was on display. Uh, I had seen photographs prior to that time, but never casts. It also beckoned me irresistibly to the Fisherman's Wharf office of this newspaper where they had a few copies of Betty Allen's Bigfoot Diary, hot off the press and available for 50 cents each. At that time, I was collecting anything I could find on Bigfoot and related creatures, so this Bigfoot Diary was a priority. Before I go on, please indulge me in a personal flashback late 1950s, I was living in New York City. An associate of mine told me one morning that he had seen a special on television the night before about a strange Yeti-like creature living in California. Since I was the only person he knew that had spent much time in California, he asked me if I had ever heard of it. At that time, I was firmly convinced of the existence of the Yeti in Asia, but had not yet heard mention of the name Sasquatch or Bigfoot, I assured him that any such thing was certainly impossible, but to his credit I didn't convince him. The special had impressed him enough to leave him with an objective open mind. I really can't defend the stand I took. In mitigation, perhaps it's to my credit that I did think about what he was saying for a few minutes, and then told him that I believe that the one place in California where such creatures could best exist, if they did exist, would be in the far northwest corner of the state. He said that he thought that was the very area that they were talking about. Around 1960, I moved to San Francisco Bay Area from New York. A year or two later, I came across Sanderson's Abominable Snowman book, which really began my education in cryptozoology. Thus, I was more than ready for and receptive to the November 63 edition of the SF Territorial News. The article in the Territorial News was an account of a visit to Willow Creek for their Bigfoot Days celebration by George Walmsley, publisher of the newspaper. The article included an account of a trip 
out along the Bluff Creek Road to see Bigfoot tracks. It wasn't long before I was at the newspaper's office on Fisherman's Wharf purchasing a Bigfoot diary and meeting George Walmsley. It turned out that Betty Allen was George Walmsley's aunt and the person that had arranged his Bluff Creek outing. During our conversation that day, I told him I was taking my family on vacation up the California coast and inquired about the possibility of viewing tracks. He encouraged me to contact his aunt and gave me her address in Willow Creek. Up to that time, I had hardly heard of Betty Allen. She is mentioned a couple of times in Sanderson's book, but so casually her name did not stick in my memory. I certainly wasn't aware of the extent of her investigations and her other efforts that were bringing such widespread attention to Bluff Creek. She was about as unknown to me then as she seems to be to many of the Bigfoot investigators and authors of today. I wrote to Betty. There was no reply for a while. Then, just a day or so before heading out, a letter arrived. It was dated July 17, 1964, and said, in part, I would be glad to meet with you, and though the news out of the area of Bluff Creek is very sketchy this year, I know earlier the tracks were seen. It would be a very interesting trip for you to take at any rate, and there is a fine camping spot at the Notice Creek Bridge. Workmen are going and coming, but with ordinary caution it is safe enough to drive. Loggers are very polite and careful in this area. I wish I had more recent news and more definite appearances this year, but uh, often I do not hear when they come in, and the men are so busy they pay no attention. Now, Betty told me that at first she tried to discourage people from going to Bluff Creek or anywhere else to search for signs of Bigfoot. She was afraid they would find nothing and spread the word that it was all a hoax. Some insisted on poking around anyway, and in time she came to realize that those that went into the field to search often found nothing. She began encouraging those that wanted to investigate. She told me of three general areas that were good places to look for tracks. One was on Notice Creek. I forget if she mentioned the location of a second one, but the one she recommended to me was an area on Bluff Creek near Laos Camp. She didn't tell me where to look, but she did mention things to look for besides tracks. She also told me exactly, to the tenth of a mile, the best place to get down from the road into the steep-sided creek. Among the most interesting parts of my visit was hearing her relate much of the historical Bigfoot investigations and experiences. She talked a bit about searches for Bigfoot evidence, not only in the area of Bluff Creek, but, as she put it, coming in from the other side. Incidentally, it appears the term Bigfoot had been used in the Klamath area by non-Indias for some time before the creature ever made the Eureka newspapers. At the time of my first visit to Willow Creek, and for some time previously, Betty was a string reporter for the Eureka newspaper, gathering news and material from the areas near where she lived. The Yurok and Hoopa Indians had known for a very long time about the strange hairy man-like giants that they called Uma. 
my own spelling from verbal coaching of a Yurok friend. Incidentally, it is a Yurok Indian that probably should get credit for the quoted reaction when first informed about the white man's interest in Bigfoot by replying that it was interesting that the white man had finally gotten around to discovering this. There are many accounts from loggers, female cooks at the logging camps, hunters, fishermen, ranchers, and other non-Indians in the area reporting sightings and tracks from long ago. I have seen and heard some of these accounts that go back at least as far as the early 1940s, and I have heard rumors of much earlier incidents. Betty told me about one very old Indian woman she took up to Bluff Creek to see the tracks. This woman carried the very old tattoos on her face that I understand were applied to young children of her tribe in the 1800s. The woman couldn't walk very far, and then only with help. When she saw the tracks, she excitedly exclaimed, All my life I've heard about these things, and now at last I finally get to see their tracks. In the 1950s, logging operations in Northern California were going full blast. The one best known to Bigfoot buffs is one that was located in the great V of the Klamath River, where a new road was built paralleling little-known Bluff Creek and stretching back more than 20 miles from the Klamath River. For much of the time that logging operations and road building were taking place near Bluff Creek and alongside the Lonesome Ridge, the workers camped out or lived in portable accommodations in the woods. They generally only went home on weekends, leaving their woodsy campsites deserted. It didn't take long before strange, large footprints started appearing, especially where new road gratings had taken place. Soon, other incidents began to occur, which have been previously mentioned in various Bigfoot records. Betty told me that the contractor was loath to have any word of these strange happenings reported to the outside world, partly for this reason, and partly not to be accused of being crazy, the workers were reluctant to speak of the strange events that were taking place. Some of the occurrences the workers found very alarming. At home on the weekends, some of the workers would confide their uneasiness to their wives, and in time, some of these wives began to talk to Betty. It is likely that Betty had heard about this Bigfoot creature prior to the time when these wives began to fear for their husband's safety. I do know that at some point Betty began her own investigation of whatever evidence she could uncover that might prove or disprove the existence of Bigfoot. Her efforts eventually convinced her that Bigfoot roamed her area, and his visits were not isolated or just occasional. The reports from workers' wives, coupled with information she obtained by other means, enabled Betty to gather a considerable amount of data. One time she was having dinner in one of the Willow Creek restaurants when she overheard a man at the table behind her talking about huge footprints. He had found these tracks around his snowbound construction equipment out in the woods. He was telling how he had followed the tracks for several miles in the snow, in the dead of winter, before turning back because of a new storm threat. She told me that 
When she overheard this conversation, she turned around and politely asked a question or two. This led to an evening's dinner, for she spent about as much time conversing with the table behind her as with those at her own table. She said that on the restaurant wall near the table was a map of the Klamath area. And this map was used during this conversation to indicate various locations. Some years later, while having dinner in one of the Willow Creek restaurants, I noticed a map on the wall above my table. In looking closely at it, I noticed a circle and several other pencil marks drawn in the upper Bluff Creek area. And I wondered if these marks were added to that map one evening by a contractor and or Betty Allen. I'm not sure that same restaurant is still there, but I do know the map has disappeared. With some of the information she gathered, Betty began a scrapbook. As the reports from loggers' wives and others accumulated, she began to try to interest her editor, Andrew Genzoli, in her material. She wanted to do an article for the Eureka paper. For some time, Mr. Gonzoli expressed no interest in such an article. Finally, after repeated efforts on Betty's part, he stopped putting her off. Betty sent a small sample portion of her material. Then she waited for his response. Some days later, Betty opened the Eureka paper to see an article Mr. Gonzali had written using some of the material Betty had supplied. His article featured an illustrated cartoon caricature, probably so that no one would accuse the newspaper of seriously believing the Bigfoot material. Betty was disappointed. When she talked with her editor by phone, she learned that he fully expected hoots and ridicule to result from the article's appearance, but decided to publish it anyway. When letters from readers slowly began to arrive, Mr. Gonzali was surprised that instead of ridicule, the writers told personal stories of Bigfoot experiences. Betty was surprised at the extent of the readership reaction. Later, Mr. Gonzali got in touch with Jerry Crew regarding the cast that he had made and wrote a second article. It just might have been Betty Allen that brought Mr. Gonzali and Jerry Crew together, as she was there helping Jerry Crew when he made his first cast. She said she came back the next day to the casting site with her own material and made a cast from the same series of tracks Jerry used. The article featuring Jerry Crew and his cast was the one picked up by the Associated Press Wire Service that resulted in changing the scope of Bigfoot investigations forever. Betty had not gotten to write her article, but her efforts to collect, examine, and her attempts to publish had launched the modern Bigfoot era. In Canada, John Green and Rene DeHinden read about the Bigfoot in Northern California, and first John, and later Rene, came to investigate. Tom Slick saw the reports and shifted his attention from the Yeti of Tibet to the Bigfoot of California. Now, Betty didn't seem to have great admiration for Tom Slick's Pacific Northwest expedition. She didn't approve of hunting Bigfoot with guns, especially since so little was known about it. She was relieved when the expedition members left without a Bigfoot specimen. It also may be that she declined to share her information with the Slick Expedition. 
If this is so, it may explain why members of that group have pretty much ignored her contributions to the study of Bigfoot in their writings. In 1958, Ivan Sanderson became aware of reported Bigfoot activity in Northern California. In his book, Abominable Snowmen, Legend Come to Life, Sanderson, on page 129, makes the following statement referring to when he heard about California Bigfoot for the first time. The point I want to make is that this whole bit did sound quite absurd even to us, who became immune to such shocks years ago. It is all very well for abominable creatures to be pounding over snow-covered passes in Nepal and Tibet, but a wild man with a 17-inch foot and a 50-inch stride tromping around California was then a little too much to ask, even for us, to stomach. In the foreword to his Abominable Snowman book, Mr. Sanderson also states, Three years ago, his book was published in 1961, I dismissed all such evidence as either hoax or legend. Of course, that was before his trip to Willow Creek in 1959, and his meetings with Betty Allen. She said Sanderson stayed in a motel in Willow Creek for a week or two while she ran around lining up witness after witness for him to interview. She opened her files to him. She offered to accompany him to Bluff Creek, but he wasn't interested in viewing anything for himself, neither locations nor tracks. By the time Sanderson left, Betty had furnished him with enough material for a book on the Bigfoot of Northern California which she expected him to write. Instead, he used only part, a small part, of her material for a chapter or so in his abominable snowman book. She was disappointed once again. It should be realized that the Bigfoot incidents in Bluff Creek in the 1950s and 60s were by no means unique. Similar happenings had been known in many places in and outside the United States, Sometimes the occurrences were, and still are, as frequent, if not more so, than Bluff Creek. But, thanks to Betty Allen's efforts, it was Bluff Creek that got the big play in the newspapers, thus attracting the attention of many investigators and researchers, and eventually Patterson and Gimlin. And Betty lived very modestly when I knew her. She did not even have a car. She enjoyed going out into the field to investigate, but to do this, she had to get someone to take her, as the trip from her home to the prime evidence areas was more than 50 miles over not the best of roads. Al Hogson, who was later to be involved with the Patterson-Gimlin filming, and who now is doing such a nice job of developing the Bigfoot wing of the museum in Willow Creek, was one of those that accompanied her on trips up Bluff Creek. Today, Willow Creek seems to me to be about the same size as it was in the early 1960s. It is the southern gateway to Bluff Creek area and is the place where the Bigfoot Scenic Highway, State Highway 96, starts and proceeds north towards the creek Betty so loved to visit. The Willow Creek Museum is well worth a visit as it houses Bob Tibbs's Bigfoot cast collection and other interesting material. It is a shame that Betty's material is not there as well. Willow Creek was Betty's hometown until the mid-1960s when she moved to Alaska. 
she wrote me some time after the big Alaska earthquake, telling me of information she had received from Ivan Sanderson regarding Bigfoot happenings on the Pacific coast, near where Alaska and Canada meet. I think the idea of searching out Bigfoot in Alaska appealed to her. I was at the dedication of the Bigfoot wing of the Willow Creek Museum in 1999. I had been to the museum once before and have visited several times since. The staff of volunteers is very helpful and polite, but with the exception of Al Hogson, none that I talked with seemed to have any idea who Betty Allen was. I think it would be nice if her name was on the outside of the museum in big letters, maybe something like the Betty Allen Bigfoot Museum and Research Center. What do you think? There is a copy of Betty Allen's small booklet, Bigfoot Diary, locked up in one of the museum's display cases. Outside of that, she seems pretty much forgotten in her hometown and most everywhere else. Don Davis was involved casually as a witness, investigator, and researcher in the field of cryptozoology since before Bernard Heuvelmans coined the term. The article appearing here is the first draft for a chapter of a book he was preparing about some of his more interesting Bigfoot experiences. Sadly, Don died in February 2002, and this article was his last work to see print. Copyright, published in Craig Heinzelman's Crypto, Hominology Special Number 2, 2002. This ends the third reading. Thank you for listening. Story from Orleans, California, 1952. This person's encounter was so shocking that he blocked it from consciousness for a time. He did recall the events, however, and this is what he related. I began to remember more and more of what happened. I had me a bad case of the jitters as the memory uncoiled. The first part of the story took me back to 1952, when I had gone to Orleans to start preliminary work on a logging operation with two men by the names of Lee Valeri and Josh Russell. One evening, Josh told me Lee had gone up to Happy Camp, but not having transportation back wanted me to take the Mercury and go up and get him. I had driven the extremely crooked and dangerous road up there, but not being able to find him started back alone to Orleans. It had been raining very heavily, and after going back a few miles, I found there had been a slide across the road. There was a man with a flashlight there who told me I could still go back to Orleans by way of a detour across the river. He said it was a dirt road that went through Bear Valley and could come out at the mouth of Bluff Creek a few miles below Orleans. I had been driving slowly down this road for about 20 miles, I guess, sort of daydreaming, when I saw it. Dimly in the headlights, in the rain, was a shaggy, orangutan-like apparition of a human. For an instant, I had the impression the shaggy hair of the creature was a hoary blue-gray in the headlights. An ogre, I remember thinking. But the thing swiftly backpedaled off the road and behind a tree. I automatically passed it off as imagination and drove on by the spot. Suddenly, without warning, the car went into a violent and unreasonable skid. I brought the car back under control, but for some reason glanced into the rearview mirror. In the dim light of the taillights and license display bulb, I thought I could see a savage-looking face looking through the rear glass. 
I continued on, and when I looked again, there was no face. So again concluded it was imagination. I had gone another quarter mile, I guess, when across the road was a small six-inch sapling. I stopped the car and got out, intending to drag it aside if possible. Suddenly I heard the swift thud of flying feet of something coming down the road. Reality was upon me, and I remember cursing myself for not paying attention to what I had previously seen. It was the shaggy, human-like monster I had seen in the headlights. It at once started circling around me, snarling and acting very menacing. It kept this circling up for some time and once came up quite close, and I could see its face reflected by the headlights much better. The eyes were round and rather luminous. The hair on top of its rather low and rounded head was pretty short. Its eye teeth were far longer than a human's. Also, the chest and upper part of its torso was rather bare of hair and also leathery-looking. It wasn't too tall, not much more than my own five feet nine inches, although it had a stooped, long-armed posture. Then suddenly it changed tactics. It would stalk off down the road, but would come charging back like a bat out of hell when I started toward the car. The hour was late. The thing was becoming more and more menacing, and I was almost paralyzed by this time, paralyzed by fear. Suddenly a plan of escape, born out of desperation, popped into my mind. Since the monster seemed to think I couldn't get away, why not, when it went down the road again, playing cat and mouse, try to get in the car and smash through the sapling? This I did and sprang for the door of the car a dozen feet away. No sooner was I inside when there it was, trying to claw through the window. I jerked the car into gear, floored the accelerator, and can vividly remember the wet sapling glistening whitely in the headlights as the car slashed it aside. I remember the scream of rage and frustration it then gave. It was a curious, trumpeting sound, like the scream of a stallion and the roar of a mad grizzly. The car then felt as though it were being held back by something half-riding and attempting to stop it. But the powerful mercury proved too much for it, and after a couple hundred yards I felt no more resistance. To top this unbelievable experience off, believe it or not, I promptly forgot the whole experience. Then and there it went out of my mind. Not even the next day when Lee asked me if I had seen anything unusual on that road last night did I remember. He had come later from Happy Camp with another man hired to take him to Orleans. A few days later, an incident happened that should have brought the experience back, but didn't. Lee noticed a big dent in the grill of the car and asked me how it got there. I told him I didn't know. Incidentally, Lee told me that something had tried to push them off the road when they came through on the detour. He said there's something strange going on around here and let the matter drop. Thanks for listening to this episode of Creek Devil. If you or anyone you know has had an encounter with these creatures, please contact us at williamjevning at yahoo.com. That's William, J-E-V-N-I-N-G, at yahoo.com. All communication is confidential. Join us for another program next week. And until then, keep your eyes open out there.